0: Ollie, what's the matter? I'm scared. Why, there's nothing to be afraid
1: of. Dead men can't hurt you.
0: (laughs) Hello, hello, and welcome to the 24th episode of the Laurel and Hardy Blockcast. I'm your host, Patrick Vasey, the author of the Laurel and Hardy blog, and the forthcoming book that will accompany this podcast, Laurel and Hardy Silence. And over the next couple of hours, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the next film that Laurel and Hardy made at the Roach Studios, 1928's Habeas Corpus. Now, throughout Laurel and Hardy's film career, there are certain moments, or certainly certain films, that stand out as pivotal moments in their developmental journey. Sort of waymarkers, if you will. And Habeas Corpus, believe it or not, is one of those films. Not only was it Stan and Babe's first attempt at an out-and-out horror comedy or scare comedy, but also, and more importantly, to my mind anyway, it was their very first sound comedy. And by that, I mean their first picture produced with a synchronised music and sound effects track. This was their first step towards the talkies. And so, as this is such an important film in those respects, I've enlisted the help of two expert guests. The first is a new guest to the broadcast, joining us from New Jersey, scare comedy expert Paul Castiglia. And in the second half of the show, and to round off the discussion, we'll be checking in with our regular expert, Randy Screpvet. So stick around, this is going to be good. But before I pass it to you through the porthole, I want to say a couple of thank yous. Uh, First off, I've received three new podcast reviews, and all with five-star ratings. So, thank you to Jay Hendrickson in the US, uh, who said, Absolutely first-rate my favourite podcast. Thank you, Jay, that's much appreciated. Uh, And the second review comes from Rory Boy in the UK, and his review reads, I've only just come across this podcast. While recovering from a lengthy illness, I revisited the films of my favourite screen comedians. It was the best cure, so I searched out any podcasts on the boys. This is so interesting, and the format of following a chronological journey is brilliant. Really well presented, engaging style, and great knowledgeable guests. I'm catching up from the beginning, and I'm loving it. Keeping me occupied for many hours. Thank you so much, and keep up the great work. You are more than welcome, Rory boy. Um, And the very latest review comes from, and I'm going to say this right, Tar Alistair uh, over in New Zealand. Um, And they say, having been a longtime fan of Laurel and Hardy since childhood, it was wonderful to have my passion reignited by this podcast. Really insightful and informative. Learning lots of details I never knew. This is my go-to podcast. Thanks. Thank you, Tar Alastair. Thank you so much. And if you if you can and you're able to and you'd like to leave a review, I would very much appreciate it. It really does keep me going. Um, and on a personal note, it was my birthday at the end of June, and I wanted to say a heartfelt thank you to everyone who sent me birthday greetings and well-wishes. It was it was actually very overwhelming to receive so many. So a huge thank you to you all for sending these in. Uh, and my last thing to pass on before we begin is going to be relevant to a certain number of you, but not everyone. Uh, it concerns a rearranged date for the Laurel and Hardy event happening at the Bull Inn in Um The Bull Inn, if you don't know, is the pub that Stan's sister Olga used to run um, and the boys visited uh, there a number of times during the 1950s tours of the UK. Uh, so the rearranged date is now going to be uh, on Saturday, the 30th of July. Uh, there is a film show, a visit to pay respects to Stan's father's grave, AJ's grave. Um, there should be a number of Laurel and Hardy authors present, I believe. Uh, and I'm also going to be there, along with my Laurel and Hardy partner in crime, Russell Babbage. Russ and I are planning to present an exclusive sneak preview of some of the chapters of our upcoming book, Laurel and Hardy Silence... Um, so if you're going to attend, do look out for us, or if uh, if you can, come and say hello. It'd be great to see some of you there. Um, you can find links to all of this and more in the blogcast show notes, of course. Just go to blogheads.com. That's blog-heads.com. And so, with all that out of the way, there are just a couple of checks to make.
1: Are all the doors locked? Yes, madame. The windows barred? Yes, madam.
0: So let's get to it. And now it's time for our audio blog on today's film and focus, which is Habeas Corpus. It was filmed July 16th to August 3rd, 1928, and released on December 3rd, 1928. It was produced by Hal Roach, directed by James Parrott, photographed by Len Powers. The movie world was changing. The development of sound recording technology to accompany motion pictures had been building for some time, with Thomas Edison beginning attempts to invent a reliable method as early as 1891. On both sides of the Atlantic, many others followed suit over the years that followed. With various degrees of success, the different systems devised and experimented with included Leon Gaumont's Chronophone system around 1905 and the German-made synchroscope imported to the US in 1908. The many teething problems these new and highly experimental technologies faced resulted in the public considering them as nothing more than amusing and sometimes annoying sideshows. It wasn't until the arrival of the Vitaphone sound-on-disc system around 1926 that audiences and the industry as a whole began to sit up and take notice. Warner Brothers were the early trailblazers to harness and utilise sound recording technology. Their steady stream of Vitaphone shorts featuring mostly singers and comics direct from Vaudeville began appearing in the latter part of 1926. The major game changer came the following year with Warner's release and aggressive marketing of The Jazz Singer. The Jazz Singer's impact was such that Warner Brothers went from being a relatively minor studio to one of the leading players in Hollywood almost overnight. Any studio executives still resisting the sound revolution over concerns about the popularity and long-term prospects of the talkies had their resolve broken due to this picture. Al Jolson's mass appeal, combined with the patented Vitaphone sound process, convinced the public and the studios that the talkies were here to stay. The jazz singer was not an all-talkie. Instead, it contains sections of spoken dialogue and Jolson's renditions of songs, such as Blue Skies and My Mammy, interspersed with silent sequences containing added sound effects and a background score. This back and forth between silent and sound not only highlighted the wonder of the spoken segments, but, as author Scott Eyman expertly notes, by producing a film that slides from sound to silence and back again, the Warner Brothers will negatively emphasise silence, This sudden reversion to an abruptly passé convention is far more damaging to the traditions and values of silent cinema than any all-talkie could have been. Despite the applause that followed the jazz singer's successful release, the rest of Hollywood now had to decide not if, but how to respond. One of the most notable doubters of the sound revolution was Nick Schenk, head of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, and one of the most powerful men in Hollywood – MGM had rapidly become the biggest and most successful of all the movie studios, but they were eyeing the move away from silent pictures with doubt and some degree of suspicion. Quote, Nick Schenk of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer took the words right out of our mouth when he said that producers should be very careful in introducing sound effects on the screen. Right now, the whole country is arguing pro and con over the talking movie. A straw vote in Hollywood seems to register an even break. Sound effects will be accepted, if they are legitimate, but already some are starting in to fake certain sounds. That is well where the rub will come. The combining of two mechanical devices, such as the moving machine and the talking apparatus, only one thing can result. Mechanical entertainment. That was from the Los Angeles Evening Post, June 9th, 1928. As their film distributor, the Hal Roach studios worked closely with MGM, and Hal Roach likely paid close attention to what his large, conspicuous neighbours were doing and saying concerning their plans for sound pictures. Not surprisingly, Roach's and MGM's movements into this new era were very similar. An initial toe-dipping attempt had been made with the early April 1928 release of Our Gang's Barnum and Ringling Incorporated, making it the first picture to be produced by the Roach Studio with a synchronised music and effects track. The film's surviving original soundtrack features, quote, a host of unimaginative animal noises and occasional bursts of cheers and applause from the kiddie crowds. Uninspiring, perhaps, but at least it was a start. Despite this springtime foray into the world of sound, it wasn't until the autumn of 1928 that the Halridge Studios finally nailed their colours to the mast. The studio's report to the stockholders, dated August 31, 1928, announced quote, The last few months has witnessed the advent of another element in the production field that is, the talking or sound pictures. It is, of course, difficult to foretell what the eventual outcome of talking pictures will be or the eventual form they will assume. One thing is certain, however, that is that they are at the present time an element in the amusement field apparently having a definite appeal to the public, and, properly handled, it promises to be a great addition to the entertainment value of pictures, and a great aid to the producer in building up interest in the picture intended. The company has placed itself in a position to gain by any and all new methods and devices introduced in the field, and is party to a contract with the Western Electric subsidiaries handling the sound effects prepared and manufactured by the Victor Talking Machine Company in collaboration with the distributor and this company. Developments in the sound field are carefully watched, and its entertainment and box office value will be fully availed of. End quote. And breathe. (laughs) <laughs> the following day, this same news was confirmed to the broader industry in Motion Picture News. Quote, Decision has finally been made with regard to sound in Hal Roach comedies. MGM announces that 35 out of 40 Roach productions on the schedule for the coming year will be synchronised. Discussing sound pictures, Hal Roach said, The art of pantomime is as old as amusement itself, and there isn't the slightest chance that dialogue ever will entirely displace pantomime on the screen. Dialogue can't possibly take the place of pantomime in causing laughs. There is no doubt, however, that synchronisation of the score will be a great help to comedy subjects. I should say that it will increase the amusement possibilities of a comedy from 10-20% to to have proper musical accompaniment. Proper orchestration, to my mind, is the biggest addition to the movies by the sound effects. Sound effects and pictures are going to find a definite niche in the market, there is no doubt about that. And that was from Motion Picture News, September 1st, 1928. After much thought and multiple research trips to New York, Roach and his executives decided to begin their sonic adventures cautiously by only adding synchronised music and sound effects to their pictures. In an interview with the New York Times, Roach admitted, quote, It's easy to imagine the variety of humorous and farcical effects possible for a sound comedy, end quote. The first Laurel and Hardy picture to receive this treatment was Habeas Corpus. Filmed from mid-July to the beginning of August 1928, the picture is essentially a scare comedy. Horror stories and tales of the macabre were popular with theatre audiences, with actors such as Lon Chaney becoming famous and arguably typecast in such roles as The Hunchback of Notre Dame, 1923, and The Phantom of the Opera, 1925. It has long been understood that scariness and silliness are compatible bedfellows. The horror-comedy genre became popular during the early 1920s, primarily through Harold Lloyd's films such as Haunted Spooks, 1920, I Do, 1921, and Dr Jack, 1922, and also Buster Keaton's The Haunted House, 1921. Stan and Babe had dabbled in the genre the previous year in Do Detectives Think?, the hapless detectives give themselves the jitters by sneaking into a windy graveyard in the dead of night to recover their blown-off hats from the wrong side of the gates. It's no exaggeration to say that habeas corpus borrows the essence of that sequence and extends it to fill two reels. The boys are cast as down-and-outs and arrive at the door of a stereotypically nutty professor to beg for food. The professor, played by Richard Carl, invites them in and offers to pay them $500 to assist him with his latest experiment. They must successfully exhume and deliver a corpse from the local graveyard. Although surprised and somewhat perturbed, the boy's desperate situation forces them to agree. The professor's dastardly plans are overheard by his butler, played by Birmingham-born Charlie Rogers. Another graduate of the Fred Carno troupe and a close friend of Stan Laurel, Rogers makes his second of two back-to-back appearances here with the boys. However, the butler is not all he appears to be. It becomes evident that Rogers is undercover Detective Ledoux, and he sneaks a call to police headquarters requesting backup. Shortly after Stan and Ollie have left the house, tailed by Ledoux, the cops arrive and arrest the professor, who leaves the house dancing a merry dance, the film's attempt at confirming his insanity to the audience. Completely unaware of this development, the boys make their way to the graveyard to complete their dastardly deed. The picture's first notable gag is as the boys try to find out which direction to take, and Stan spots a signpost and suggests they read the sign. He places his hands on the post and goes to climb it, but Ollie pushes him aside and clambers up himself. Stan assists his partner in crime by pushing Hardy's ample posterior. Once at the top of the post, Ollie comes face to face with a sign that reads Wet Paint. After a couple of trademark camera looks, Ollie descends the post. Once down, Ollie turns to Stan and reveals a vast pole-shaped stripe of white paint down the front of his clothes and sleeves, and Stan's big white handprints on the seat of his trousers. This same gag, minus the handprints, would be reused 16 years later in their 20th century Fox feature film, The Big Noise. Whilst the gag is funny, it is one of those gags that is entirely nonsensical when considered rationally. Why would one need to climb a directional signpost to read it? After all, the very purpose of a signpost is for it to be readable from the road. This serves as a reminder that it doesn't pay to think too deeply about the validity of situations in two real comedies. If it's funny, then it's funny, and that's all that matters. Uh, They arrive at their destination, and Ollie sends Stan into the graveyard to do the digging, whilst he bravely keeps watch from the street. Detective Ledoux, wrapped in a white bedsheet, is keeping a close eye on the boys from strategic hiding positions, and a very nervy and wobbly Stan is frightened to death when Ledoux fails to stifle a sneeze. Terrified, Stan runs out to Ollie, who also jumps out of his skin, and after a brief hat-swapping routine, Ollie forces Stan back inside, and he finally begins to shovel some dirt. However, he's spotted in the act by a night watchman who begins to make his way over to Stan to intervene. But he trips over the crawling figure of Detective Ledoux, still wrapped in the bedsheet. The commotion causes Stan to again run for his life, as does the watchman who locks the graveyard's gates behind him. So now the boys must find another way of entering the cemetery. This leads to a second standout moment of the film in which Ollie tries to assist Stan in scaling the graveyard wall. The boys get a good few minutes worth of comedy out of this one situation and the sequence is arguably a blueprint for a similar scene in 1929's Birthmarks, the boys' second talkie, where Ollie attempts to help Stan climb into their train berth. This is good Laurel and Hardy slapstick and laugh-out-loud funny. However, not everyone admires this scene, with film historian Glenn Mitchell describing it as a particularly frustrating sequence and far too long. An excellent twist follows as Stan back-digging out the grave is spooked again. He leaps over the wall and back onto the street in a single superhuman bounce. Frustrated at Stan's cowardice, Ollie declares that he will complete the task himself and takes a running jump at the wall. His weight hilariously makes the wall collapse under him and he lands in a pile of bricks inside the graveyard. Amazingly, he sustains only a minor injury to one of his feet. Another great gag follows, whereby Ollie, still sitting on the ground, removes his shoe to tend to his damaged foot. His socks are so torn that his two biggest toes are completely visible. As Ollie keeps watch, Stan digs out the grave and unwittingly covers Ollie's leg and foot. Ollie starts wiggling his toes under the dirt, and Stan spots the movement and mistakes the toes for a mystery hand. He pats Ollie and points out the zombie-like hand emerging from the earth much to Ollie's amazement. Ollie quickly grabs the shovel and smashes it down on top of his own foot. Yet again, this is another of those unrealistic gags, but it is delightful, and the boys' terrified reactions add wonderfully to the comedy. The boys would revive this gag in their 1934 short, Oliver VIII, but on that occasion, rather than reaching for a spade, Ollie tells Stan... Get that gun, and shoot to kill... A final noteworthy scene leads to the film's finale. The boys finally exhume what they believe to be a corpse, but the dead body in the sack is that of the very much alive Detective Ledoux. Stan carries the body in a sack slung over his back. As he lugs their bounty down the street, Ledoux's legs burst out of the bottom, and he begins to walk in step right behind Stan. This gag is not a new invention, but had been recycled from earlier roach comedies. Moonlight and Noses, 1925, directed by Stan Laurel and starring Clyde Cook, and Max Davidson's Dumb Daddies, from 1928. Still, even so, it works here and makes for an enjoyable scene. Charlie Rogers' Ledoux character has some fun with the grave robbers as they attempt to casually make their way back to the professor's home to collect their now non-existent reward. The picture closes with Ollie running frantically down the street, followed by Stan and his self-propelled sack. Ollie and Ledoux fall into an enormous roadside puddle while Stan watches on. Their terror continues as Ledoux's cloth-covered head appears from the murky depths, and Stan and Ollie run for their lives. The end. Retakes for Habeas Corpus, wrapped at the beginning of August 1928. In October, Roach sent his head of film editing, Richard Courier, to the Camden, New Jersey studios of the Victor Talking Machine Company. He was tasked with creating and recording music and sound effects tracks for Habeas Corpus and several other of Roach's silent pictures that had been completed and shelved. This was a steep learning curve for all involved. Courier had to learn the art of sound recording from scratch. From the outset, the victim musicians admitted their ignorance about movie making, so they left the selection of appropriate music for each picture to Courier. Once selected, the musicians would then go away and record it, leaving Courier to create and record, mainly through trial and error, realistic sound effects. As one might expect, the experimental nature of the sound effects tracked for Habeas Corpus makes it relatively limited in its scope. It primarily consists of knocking and clicking noises and what sounds like the occasional slide whistle thrown in to represent an eerie wind blowing across the graveyard. Some of the more convincing highlights of the effects track are Stan and Charlie Rogers' hand claps, which synchronise pretty well, and the sound of the wall collapsing under Hardy's weight, which explodes with a burst of noise. One particular, yet sadly unidentified, exhibitor explicitly praised the soundtrack, reviewing it thus. Fair comedy, with some good music on record, and good sound effects, making it better entertain. That was from the Exhibitor's Herald World, from November 23rd, 1929. Stan Laurel appears to have regarded the comedy as a success. In a letter to correspondent Bill Brown, dated December 1st, 1961, Stan described the film as, quote about a nutty professor who hired us to go to a graveyard and dig up a corpse. He was making an experiment to bring the body back to life. It was really a funny short, even though the idea was gruesome. Wasn't as bad as it sounds, we never accomplished our mission. In the main, the 1928-29 movie going public, and critics agreed with Stan. Reviewer George J. Reddy wrote, Merry proceedings, a fine splurge of laughs which scud through its length. An accelerated pace, this Hal Roach starring vehicle for Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy delivers in splendid fashion. That was from Motion Picture News, January 12th, 1929. Likewise, exhibitors and theatre owners were equally pleased with the service Stan and Babe were providing to their patrons. Quote, A knockout. This saved the show for me. Had them doubled up with laughter. How do these boys keep it up? From Central Theatre, Selkirk, Manitoba, in Exhibitors Herald and Moving Picture World, December 29th, 1928. Oh wow, I'm laughing yet! What these boys don't do to your funny bone. Had the house in an uproar all the way through. They start laughing just as soon as they see Laurel and Hardy on the screen. Print and Photography Fair. From the Screenland Theatre, Nevada, Ohio. Not their best but you wouldn't believe it when you hear the laughs. Our public is sold on Laurel and Hardy. From the Egyptian Theatre, Pennsylvania. This was a return engagement on this one, and it pleased again. Better to do this than play some so-called comedies. Texas Theatre, Grand Prairie, Texas. Oh my, but this was a real comedy from the way our crowd carried on. This pair certainly is getting the laughs. From the Deluxe Theatre, Spearville, Kansas. Now, providing that you can't please all of the people all of the time, one exhibitor was less than impressed with habeas corpus. Although the comments perhaps say more about small town sensibilities than it does about the picture. Quote We could never see any excuse for using a cemetery as a background for a comedy. This is one place that should be held sacred and not used for laughing purposes. We noticed it put a dampener on most of our folks, and no, it did on us. Majestic Theatre, Wiener, Arkansas in Exhibitor's Herald World, August 8th, 1929. The one unquestionable indicator that proves whether a comedy is successful or not surely has to be laughter. So despite disapproval by the Wiener residents, the rest of the extant reviews indicate that Habeas Corpus was a tremendous success. Indeed, the following article, featured in the Los Angeles Times, suggests that the film generated more laughs in its two reels than in any other of the first 41 pictures made by the boys at the Hal Roach Studios. Quote, The highest total of laughs in any one Laurel Hardy comedy was reached during a clocking of habeas corpus, the action of which took place largely in a graveyard. 128 unmistakable cachinnations were registered by this one. 103 is the total made by Night Owls, currently on view at the Chinese Theatre. That was the Los Angeles Times, December 29th, 1929. <laughs> Joining us for the very first time on the broadcast today is Paul Castiglia. Paul is a veteran comic book creator and animation writer, documentary producer and film historian. He's also author of the brilliant blog entitled Scared Silly, Classic Hollywood Horror Comedies and a forthcoming book of the same name, which is the reason he's here with us today. So, to help us to discuss Laurel and Hardy in Habeas Corpus, I'm very happy to say, Paul Castiglia, welcome to the Laurel and Hardy broadcast.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Patrick. I appreciate it
0: you are very welcome you're very welcome and um we were were just chatting about this a few seconds ago it was really quite strange how you um you got in touch with me just to say um you know you're a big uh, fan of of horror comedies and you're writing this book and somewhere down the line it'd be great to have a chat about the live ghost or murder case and i said well funnily enough the very next podcast i'm doing is habeas corpus so thank you for getting in touch and reaching out when you did because the timing was perfect
2: Absolutely, I mean you can 't write that right
0: <laughs> absolutely not no no, not at all um, great so i 'm really looking forward to this because horror horror comedies is obviously something that i 'm very familiar with, but i 'm not an expert on at all. so to have your expertise in this in this field and to sort of put i guess put habeas corpus in a little bit of context to see how it compares with others of that genre will be brilliant so i 'm really going to uh, enjoy this. Um, But before we get into the film uh, proper, Paul, what what I always like to do with new guests is um, just ask you a little bit about your earliest memories of Laurel and Hardy and how you were introduced to them and how you kind of got into the classic film world just in general, if that's okay.
2: Sure, sure. Well, for me, Laurel and Hardy uh, came into my life around the age of four or five. So we're talking 1969, 1970. Uh, I grew up in northern New Jersey. We are just... Forty to forty-five minutes outside of New York City, so all of our TV stations were New York City-based stations. We had some great uh, independent TV stations at that time, and at that time, you could see vintage films, vintage films, shorts, cartoons. You know, black and white wasn't a dirty word on television, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and you know, and and these these were not presented to us kids as being, you know, old or antiquated or outdated. They were just presented to us as entertainments and uh, we ate it up. And my earliest memory of seeing Laurel and Hardy was on TV and it was one of the local stations. I want to say it was either five or 11. And what they were doing was they were running like a Larry Harmon animated Laurel and Hardy short. Yeah. Like the th- Five minutes, whatever they were, and then like a two-reeler, like, and that was they were doing that in a half-hour format. And I remember just like loving these guys instantly. I just took to them uh, right away, and so I had a a a number of um, run-ins with the boys uh, on TV as I was growing up. It was an interesting dynamic because sometimes you had to hunt and peck for them, yeah, uh, because they they they, the syndication rights would would vary between the different films uh and I guess what's most interesting is I grew up in northern New Jersey so almost by default you had to be an Abbott and Costello kid
1: because,
2: <laughs> because they hailed from New Jersey and because the local uh, uh WPIX channel 11 station have like all the universal Abbott and Costello films running every every Sunday morning now truth be told I, I actually do like Abbott and Costello a lot it's hard to up here and not like them uh, but Laurel and Hardy are my absolute favorites you know and I was always like puzzled why aren't Laurel and Hardy on more So what would happen would be occasionally someone would get a package one of the stations and they would run how Roach films or you could kind of catch the 40s films at odd hours uh, sometimes on a Saturday afternoon or late 2 a.m 3 a.m at some of the network affiliates. So I, I kind of caught everything I could. And uh, the local ABC affiliate had the Robert Youngson films. So I got to see the silence through that. So it was kind of this mix of just catching it when I could, checking the back of the, the TV Guide magazine uh, in the movie section and circling it wherever I could. Occasionally, PBS would run them. Uh, so it was, it was hit and miss, but I always caught them when I could. Now, a couple of, of key things. WPAX Channel 11, in addition to running the Costello every Sunday, also ran annually, every Christmas and Thanksgiving, Babes in Toyland,
1: uh-huh, under, under
2: the March of the Women's Soldiers title. They ran right. it every year. So that's the thrown-hardy film I've seen the most. I mean, it's, it's from childhood. And everybody from around here knows that film. Uh, so that was great. Uh, my local library also had a lot of the films uh available to borrow on eight millimeter and super eight so i had a projector uh they had silence they had sounds and i would borrow these films all the time and run them uh so so i got to see a lot of them that way as time went on uh there was a syndicated show called lauren hardy laugh tunes which was cut downs of the silent bits so they started running out a lot too in this area, so it would just it would ebb and flow, you know. I think in the in the '90s, then that syndicated Laurel and Hardy show came up with the Roach stuff, but that's how I get, would get to see the films, you know. Flying Deuces would turn up, uh, but but it wasn't not with any sort of regularity, unless it was something like Laugh Tunes or the Laurel and Hardy show, where it was actually you know the same day and time every week. Uh, it was more hunt and peck, uh, but I, I always went after them, you know, whenever I could. And my local library even would show the shorts on a movie screen in the courthouse, you know, because the, court, the courthouse had you know seats. So you'd go into the courthouse. I remember my buddy and I going there, taking our bikes over, and uh, you know, you'd see like four shorts. You know? <laughs> well, that's <laughs> so great. Put on, put on a screen. So there were ways to see them, and I yeah. found them. Uh, You know, and uh, when we get to the 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 atoll uh, island part, I'll get more into uh, my local library because that's also a key part of the story. But I don't want to jump ahead.
0: No, 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 no. Uh, I was just when you when you're talking about how you sort of had to you know find the films. It's such a different world, isn't it? Now today, everything's just such at your fingertips. It's ridiculous, really. Uh, It's it's hard to try. I try to get my kids to understand. You know how how easy they've got it. You know, you just couldn't say, I'm going to watch this and press a button and it's there. You'd have to, you say, wait for the TV station to show. I mean, we only had, what, three stations when I was growing up and then four stations and then five was incredible. We had five TV stations to go on. Right. Um, but, um yeah, a different world altogether. So, I mean, I'm guessing you're still a fan of, of classic comedy today, Paul, although as we wouldn't be talking, I'm, I'm pretty sure.
2: Oh, for sure, for sure. And it goes deep with me. Uh, you know, when I grew up, uh, reading different books, especially Leonard Malton's books. He did yeah. one on, on comedy teams, and he did uh, another on on shorts. And I would read about these people I never saw, you know, until like the last twenty years. And now you could see, you know, Olson and Johnson and Willer and Woolsey and and uh, Charlie Chase and a whole bunch of other people pretty easily now. Uh, when it wasn't that way when I was growing up, so. I just keep exploring. I love watching vintage comedies. You know, I like a lot of stuff. Uh, the, you know, um, uh, I look at everything like it's its own thing. You know, that was always the big thing with, with, um, the whole, you know, controversy between Laurel and Hardy and Emma Costello. It's like, well, you know, they're really, really different, right. Yeah. You know, being, yeah. having a thin guy and a fat guy and being funny is kind of where the similarities end. And, uh, <laughs> You know, and so from there, you just, you know, to me, all these teams are different. So there's something that I, I take from each one of them uh, that I enjoy. Uh, but I always get the most enjoyment out of Laurel and Hardy uh, for the reasons that a lot of people uh, have stated in their different books and, and on your uh, podcast as well, that there's a humanity to them. Yeah, uh, they, they feel like real people, no matter how outlandish the situation And there's a friendship there uh, that endures, that that I really respond to. And I I always point to busybodies. There's a moment in busybodies where um, they're just having this frustrating back and forth, and and Stan's messing everything up. And Ollie, of course, is taking the brunt of the punishment (laughs) at at the sawmill at their job as woodworkers. How they got hired for that job, I don't know. But... um, (laughs) You know uh, it's the part where uh ollie is so frustrated with stan that i i think it's where he hits him over the head does he hit him over the head with the saw stan takes the takes the brush pushes ollie and and ollie <laughs> goes flying into the wall right <laughs> Yes. and all these things fall on top of him right Stan has this momentary uh, instance of anger against Ollie, you know, because Ollie has just had it up to here with Stan and he's lashed out at Stan. So now Stan's lashing out back. But as soon as he does that, his face goes back to, Oh no, I hurt my friend. I have to go help him. And he runs over to help Ollie up. And then the whole shaving routine happens. So I always point to that as that is where humanity is, because they're together through thick and thin. It's almost like when you have a best friend or a close sibling, and you could be at each other's throats, but you also have each other's backs, no matter what the situation. Uh, you know, you, they don't throw each other under the bus. <laughs> it sometimes happens with, with other comedy duos. So, yeah, I'll leave it at that.
0: I don't know, Ollie's uh, often ended up all, almost under a bus. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hogwild springs to mind (laughs) yeah yeah brilliant that's great Um, okay so um, scare comedies horror comedies I guess horror films generally is that something that floats your boat Paul is that uh, as broad as horror just generally or is it just scare comedies that you're into
2: Uh, I like horror films I I tend to like them when there's humour involved Yeah, and it's really um, it's really about the fact that I was scared
1: Right. Uh, when
2: I was a kid, uh, I was afraid of three things on TV. Uh, I was afraid of Cesar Romero as the Joker <laughs> on, the, yeah. on the Batman 1966 Adam <laughs> West series.
0: Come, Oliver! <laughs>
1: I was
2: afraid whenever Abbot Stolome me Frankenstein would come on I'd run out of the room
1: Dracula can change himself at will into a vampire bat flying about the countryside flying
2: Similarly, I was afraid of Herman Munster on the Munster's reruns, who pretty (laughs) much was made up like Glenn Stranger was in Abacostolomy Frankenstein.
3: Last night, the police department received several reports of what was described by eyewitnesses as a fiendish monster roaming in Mid-City Park at approximately 12.30 a.m.
1: Isn't that ridiculous? It just so happens that I was in the park last night, at that time, and I didn't see any fiends or monsters.
2: (laughs) I was afraid of these things. So it, it took me time to kind of face those things and look at them and then realize, oh, these are, are like funny versions and these are ways of processing that fear and and getting to the laughter. And I think that's the fascination point for me. It's like It's like a hairline between screaming and laughing, right? Yeah. And so yeah. when you have that element where... You can scare somebody, but then bring in the, the comedy relief, and it's truly like a relief. It's like it's like yes. letting it all out. It's like ah, yeah. you're scared, and then you're like, and then you're laughing, right? So so for me, that's what tipped it in. And so then I would, you know, whenever there was comedians getting mixed up in scary situations, I ate it up. And I would keep seeing that. It would always also turn up in cartoons. Uh the other the other thing that was great about Being a kid in the 1970s and and 80s was that um, you could see all kinds of cartoons, theatrical cartoons, uh, and a lot of times they would do horror spoofs in there. And even the 1960s cartoon shows that were being rerun uh, when I was a kid, a lot of them, you know, they basically, they would spoof um, secret agents, they would spoof rock bands, uh, and and they would spoof, um, you know, horror. You know, and sometimes Westerns, you know, but but there was a lot of that spoofing of horror. And I just like gravitated towards it. I I like my monsters light and funny, uh, (laughs) you know, or at least for the situation to be that there were some kind of goofballs involved that were being scared by them. And so I really took to that. Uh, and, And I think that whole processing thing is really ingrained in horror comedy right from the beginning. You know, it, it the, the whole evolution of it um, is really fascinating to me uh, how how it all came about.
0: Yeah, uh, so I, I mentioned briefly just to, uh, when I introduced uh, you to the podcast, uh, Paul. So you, you you're writing obviously you, you've got your blog, the the um, scare silly blog, um, and you're also writing a book. So what 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 was the sort of the inspiration to write the book, Paul?
2: You know, I just I just thought, of, I, you know, I really don't know what the inspiration was other than I really like these types of films. You know, I came to find out afterwards that there had already been a few books uh, after I was in the process of writing it. I, I started this book in 2009. I still have a long way to go. Uh, it's definitely a back burner project. It's like a hobby project when I'm, you know, not up to my neck and other stuff. And there have, have been times where I haven't been able to get to it for various reasons. Uh, but you know, I, I am always thinking, you know, I'm going to finish this. I'm in forward motion. Uh, there's just a lot of them. There's a ton of them. There's a ton of shorts and features I'm covering. I was covering the silent error through mid 1966, but I'm thinking that I might take an emphasis off the silence, except where, you know, it's, it's obvious that I need to include things like the long Hardy silence and our gang silence uh, only because there's a lot of those two and some of them are lost and it's harder to see them. You know, it's harder to actually get a hold of them to watch them. And I'm doing a book of reviews, so I can't really review things I haven't looked at. So I might save the silence at this point for another volume, you know, and then if I, and then if I want to get really crazy, I might think about doing theatrical animated shorts, that are in the, the horror comedy realm, but, you know, one book at a time, you know, the, the first one is going to cover uh, the, these films that we're talking about uh, from the thirties through the mid sixties with some mentions of some silent films.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, they just, you know, I've been, I've been sort of re- researching uh, scare comedies a little bit um, to go alongside uh, the blog that I'm writing for habeas corpus at the moment. Um can you, do you do you know much about the history of scare comedies and where they sort of started from, Paul?
2: Yeah, it's really fascinating uh because it's a real mix. Uh, I mean, really, it goes to the beginning of storytelling. So the oral traditions, you know, you have to start there because you know, we think about campfire stories, right? So campfire stories always have uh, you know, a spooky element, but then there's also sometimes that relief, that comedy relief. And so you gotta think that. You know, if you go back to ancient tribes, this type of stuff was happening uh, because then it turns up in, in, you know, stage work, too. It turns up a little bit in Shakespeare, um, you know, and then, and then down through time. You have, you, have uh, you know, music hall, minstrel shows, you have vaudeville, you have burlesque, where they're incorporating uh, these types of elements, where they're mixing horror and comedy. So it starts there um really and and a lot of it um, a lot of it would be based on things that were happening in the world, you know so I don't want to get ahead of myself with that, but I'll come back to that in a moment um, there was really uh in in film, I would say in film, right from the beginning, it was kind of baked into the whole medium, because you had guys like George Millay, right? Doing all of the stuff that he did. He was a stage magician and he was putting that trickery on film, but also using the medium of film to to get effects that he couldn't get on stage. So he was combining the two. And he also realized that people watching these films in early 1900s were really going to be genuinely terrified because they were seeing things they had never seen before, you know, and it's hard for us to think of that now, but, but you have to, you have to realize, I always tell people that, you know, that you're seeing a vintage film. Now you have to think about. What was the situation for the audience, seeing it for the very first time and they were yeah. in a different situation, you know, that's why they, they always, people laugh now when they think of the great train robbery and the train coming towards the camera, but if you were there when I came out, you would you would have ducked too. You would have been scared <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: because it was it was this kind of you know odd, unreal thing you were looking at, and yet it had this dose of reality. So Malays would always insert some kind of comedy into there, uh, even as the horror was going on. So that was a, a really good initial uh, example of mixing horror and comedy in film, and then J. Stewart Blackton, who was an, a pioneering animator. He did a lot of stuff like that with stop motion. He would do live action uh, stop motion uh, combined in the same film. He has one from 1907 called The Haunted Hotel. Uh, it's, just about, it's just about a guy going to a hotel that's haunted, and it's all these little things coming to life. These inanimate objects scaring him, and it's done in a comical way but it's still creepy at the same time. (laughs) It's just creepy to see these things move on their own, you know? Yes. Yeah. So that's really, it's baked into uh, the beginning of film. I mean, it's, it's right there from the start. Then you had guys like Charlie Bowers who, uh, who took it further and he was a comedian uh, in silent films, but also he was like Millay and the fact that he was really interested in effects. So he was getting into all that stop motion stuff too, like Millay and Blackton, but what a r- real comedy bent, but surreal, um, you know. Uh,
0: that was one of the things that really surprised me as a kid was, um, uh, oh, his name, Ray Harryhausen, is it, uh, with his um, those skeletons that <laughs> used to come oh, sure. to life. Oh, they used to freak me right they?
2: <laughs> and they still look great, you know.
0: Like, <laughs> yeah, they do. If, if they you do.
2: have, you know, that imaginative mind and you allow yourself to be childlike, you're completely taken in by those those things. They're not, they don't look antiquated to me. Like I I just love them and it's still effective. Uh, So, you know, that's kind of the genesis in film. Uh, And then it it becomes even more pronounced as time goes on uh, based on two factors, one, which is real life events and the other, which is novels and plays that start to spring up. So first I'll get into the real life events. Uh, Three things in particular that informed horror comedy stories and, and movies in particular. Uh, one was the expedition to unearth, uh, the tomb of King Tut.
0: Oh, right. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So from like, uh, 1907 through like 1927 or something like that, there's like 20, 20 horror comedy films built around mummies most of them are lost right.
1: but they were made
2: and that because yeah. that captured the world's imagination this whole idea of mummies and you know they're they're almost all with this kind of horror event that you know this thing's been reanimated it's come back to life and it's coming for you and it's all bandaged up so i'm surprised that learn hardly with the mummy actually but that that was one of the things that was happening um another thing that was happening was there were a lot of phony spiritualists that were rooking people out of their money. And, you know, they were coming up with these phony seances, you know, and so you would see that a lot in some of the, our gang silent shorts and, and, and a number of other silent shorts where it was like, they would get involved with some kind of charlatan and the charlatan would end up, you know, using all these tricks to scare them. They would use dummies and, you know, hidden floor panels and wall panels. You know, revolving doors, things like that. Things that became hallmarks of the horror comedy, uh, and it was inspired by the fact that these charlatans were out there. Uh, and the and one of the um, one of the other things uh, that I'll say specifically inspired *Habeas Corpus* was the the famous grave robbers Burke and Hare who were also Uh, serial murders, Uh, you know, the, the, the different um, institutions uh, you know, medical institutions there weren't enough cadavers to go around legally uh, because there were, there were parameters, you know, you could only use certain cadavers, um, you know, based on, you know, how they died or what their station in life was. And so a lot of these scientists were just kind of, Paying people to go rob graves—it was, it was something that was really happening, and they were paying them to rob graves so they could do experiments. Uh, and of course, most notoriously, Burke and Hare, uh, who ended up being murderers. Uh, but uh, that kind of um, informs uh, habeas corpus, and and also it informs uh, a film that Stan directed three years earlier, which was uh, Clyde Cook and Noah Young in Moonlight and Noses. Which is which? *Habeas Corpus* is, from what I understand, because I haven't seen the, the Cook and Young film, is pretty much a remake of the earlier film. Uh, but when I talk about *Habeas Corpus* specifically, I'll get more into what, what I think Stan was doing.
1: Yeah, yeah, great. And, and
2: why, you know? But yeah, so that's 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 kind of the genesis. And then uh, additionally, kind of what seals the deal for horror comedies is there's a, a whole series of books and plays that start to spring up. So in 1913, Seven Keys to Bald, Plate, Bald Pate rather, by Earl Biggers came out, and he was the guy who created Charlie Chan. And 27, Benighted was a novel by J.B. Priestley and inspired the old Dark House movie. These were kind of things that were going on. Plays like The Bat and The Cat and the Canary and The Gorilla, they were all kind of mixing in uh, these elements where people were stuck in these these kind of old dark houses and they would introduce these elements that somebody had to spend the night in order to gain the inheritance. Uh, you know, you see that come up later in the Lauren Hardy murder case, uh, yeah. but it, it really inspired a ton of these films. Uh, and then later on you get Arsenic and Old Lace, but it's all kind of this uh, collation of all these elements.
1: Uh, yeah
2: and it, it really you know helped the the whole form land and it kept it going for quite a while and I think it only really the reason my book stops in 1966 is six is because it only really um starts to become anachronistic when the horrors of the world get really super frightening you know right. and then the films start to become more reflective of that you know, so there's a film called Spider Baby. I think it came out around 1968. And they had Lon Chaney Jr. in there and they had Mantan Moreland in there. Uh, And it's kind of like a really dark, scary and really twisted. uh Black comedy, but more horror version of the Addams Family. Uh And, and so, like, that's kind of where I make the mark of demarcation, uh, because. Then horror comedies don't really exist in this kind of more um, lighthearted way; they become a little more uh, real. Uh, But that's that's really it. That's that's kind of like what I consider the period in movies. It starts with melees and it goes through uh, it goes through uh, the Ghost of Mister Chicken with Don Knotts, and that's my my cutoff.
0: No, that's that's really interesting. I, I mean, just you know, just contextualizing it to Yeah, exactly what was going on in in real life. Yeah, the Burke and Hare stuff is is exactly what Stan and Babe are up to. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. So, okay, so so *Habeas Corpus* itself. Um, what what are your thoughts on *Habeas Corpus*, Paul? How how does it stack up? Do you think to other um, horror comedies? Because I think was it Harold Lloyd uh, kind of popularized it a little bit with his um, Haunted Spooks and uh, I think Dr. Jack uh, as well
2: yeah Howard Lloyds, uh works for really uh, really strong and and memorable Buster Keaton had a great one called The Haunted House yeah uh, which I was surprised at when I looked at it because my first thought was how is Stoneface gonna <laughs> do a horror comedy when he can't react but he did it all through body language and it's really kind of stunning uh, just another example that he really pro- could do really anything. And and I, I'm a little late to Keaton. Uh, but the more I the more I watched Keaton, the more I realized, oh, I get it. I get it now. I get why people are, are so into him. But with with habeas corpus, you know, I, I have a lot of thoughts on it. Um really my first thought was that it's it's what I call stand in transition. Uh
1: mm-hmm.
2: because I see when I watch it. Stan not only working through his own character traits for the Stanley character, but I also see him figuring out how to do this type of material. Yeah. Right. So we mentioned Moonlight and Noses was like his first run uh, with with, with uh, Clyde Cook and Noah Young, uh, yeah. and then they did Do Detectives Think? Yeah. Where they have a graveyard scene, where they have a spooky scene, and they have kind of a slasher character in there. And there's some great stuff in do detectives think, and there's like there's there's pivotal things in that in that film. Uh I I liken it to it's like Bugs Bunny. You know, there's the proto Bugs Bunny that shows up in a few films, uh, you know, and there's bits and pieces of it that end up in the final version that we are all familiar with, and then there's some things that drop off. And I think it's the same uh with stan in both do detectives think and and habeas corpus and interestingly ollie seems seems to have landed pretty early
0: he does isn't it? the yeah.
2: characterization and right from the beginning the this, the introductory shot of this film was brilliant because it's just their hands and yes. they're knocking on the door and it's ollie brushing away stan's hand in his you know, usual pomposity, you know.
0: Yes, I yeah, flicking before, his fist away.
2: Right, I go before you. And it's just there's it a lot of Ollie mannerisms and facial expressions in habeas corpus that are the way Ollie landed. Whereas Absolutely. there's some Laurel things in there that are in later Laurel and there's some things that have dropped off, but uh I'm really always astounded when I look at Ollie uh just and I that's that's my time machine question. If I had a time machine, I want to go back and ask Ali, you know, how much did you come up with of uh, for your own character? How much did Stan come up with for your character, and how much did the writers or directors come up with? Uh, and I have a feeling that Ali probably came up with more of his own stuff than people realize.
0: Mm-hmm. I think he so. Really I think you're absolutely right. It. He
2: never really yeah. thought about it, you know. So
0: yeah. Uh, yeah.
2: that was not his thing, you know. To talk
0: I think I think Stan, Stan said in in you know a number of interviews that they they just developed, they just yeah, yeah they they just work with them you know work with each other and they just they just grew and uh, I, th- I think that's why they just seem so natural because it is it's there's nothing forced about certainly with Baber, and he's just such a a natural actor uh, all the mannerisms come from his southern roots you know uh, and it's just yeah it's just absolutely beautiful to watch. Interestingly, just just talking about. Um, that very first shot when they're knocking on the door, I, know, I noticed something for the very first time when I was rewatching this this one just the other day. I don't know if you noticed when Ollie's hand comes in to flick away stands, Ollie's arm actually has the paint from the post that he hasn't yet climbed up. Oh, so there's a little bit of a <laughs> oh, so little tremendous. bit of an error. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and so it makes continuity. you wonder if there was another another door they were supposed to knock on or something. But yeah, it's uh, I just I haven't got a minute. I thought it was just like a sheen at first, but then when you look at it, it's paint. Yeah, old down his oh, A little
2: continuity <laughs> error there, but you know, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, It goes by. I missed it, so hopefully, other yeah, people missed
0: yeah. it. Now they won't yeah.
2: because they've listened. No, exactly. It. But, yeah, but you now, can't not can, see it. They now. can never unsee it. Um, yeah, but yeah, you know, and even when they're first talking to the professor. Uh, you know, you get one of those amazing Ollie moments where it's kind of like he's acting embarrassed and then he has this kind of false, awkward acceptance of, you know, how eccentric this professor is. And then he turns to stand with that sideways, sideways glance, you know, that are you kidding me glance? And it's it's such a, a great stock Ollie thing to do. And to see it early is uh, is just a thrill. Um you know and and as far as the professor goes, you know he's doing things with you know his facial expressions and his dialogue tip it in that he's he's you know not all there, right uh plus the fact that anybody willing to pay Laurel and Hardy five hundred dollars to do anything you know they, <laughs> they have to be they have to be nuts, but I also noted that when he flicks his cigarette ashes and into his pocket and also pours water into his pocket. It's kind of like the type of thing. This is where I say Stan in transition, where that character did it. But in later films, it's Stan that does things like that. When he becomes more of this imp who does the white magic, uh, he he does those things. You know, especially in blockheads, you see a lot of that. But it turns up in other films too. Uh, you know, uh, but but we talked about the soundtrack a little bit. Um, that's also a nice bit where where they haul off the professor after Laurel and Hardy are discharged to go, you know, rob the grave. Uh, they, they haul the professor away because the Butler is uh, somehow the Butler is really a, a policeman. There's, there's like a whole, a whole backstory that we're not getting here that uh, <laughs> yeah. in and of itself sounds a bit bizarre, but, um, but yeah, so so when he when they grab him, he does this little jig. And <laughs> that's it. The soundtrack, it's great. They put these great little effects on there to match his jig and the music. And it's really like a 1928 synchronized soundtrack. Um it's pretty astounding, you know, how how great the soundtrack is and how well it matches. Um, you know, and I can't talk about it without mentioning. Uh, two things uh, two key pieces of music Chopin's funeral march and another funeral march i don't know if i'm going to pronounce this correctly charles gounod's funeral march of a marionette they're both in there you know of course the show and da And and then the other piece is more famously known as Alfred Hitchcock's theme, especially for his TV series, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. fascinates me because in a lot of ways that piece of music is a dissonant version of yeah. the dance of the cuckoos of the world yeah, right, game yeah. it's it's almost yes. like it's a flip it's a reverse uh where the one is jaunty and, and happy and kooky the other one is you know similar melody but in a more ominous way uh so it's just interesting to note that it's it's an aside but i think it's an interesting one Uh, But the soundtrack helps this film, uh, I think, um, you know, and and it's the way it was meant to be seen. And it really adds to it, especially there's a hand clap bit uh, with Stan and and the detective in the graveyard, uh, you know, and it's just it's just an interesting way to kind of play up on what they could and couldn't do. Because there was a standard stage bit at the time uh, where there would be an echo bit. Where somebody would say something and someone off stage would echo it, you know, and the rule of threes, right? In comedy. So they do it two times, they'd get the same reply back. And then the third time they get like a different answer. And then (laughs) it would be startled, right? It was like a stop routine uh in Vaudeville and burlesque. Uh, but here they do it with the clapping and it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, and then I also love this one bit where, where they get to the graveyard. And Ollie offers to stay outside so he can protect
1: Stan. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, right. It's stands very brave. There,
2: while Stan's in there digging. And that's kind of like a stock thing that ended up in other comedians films. You know, usually if it was a straight man, not that Ollie's a straight man, but a straight man or a bossy member of a two or three man team, they would keep themselves out of danger and out of the action <laughs> under the guise yeah. of helping you know, the, the goofier yeah. or patsy type characters. You see that come <laughs> up a lot. Uh, so that's kind of a neat thing to see here, um, you know, but again, like with Stan, I, I look at it like transitionally, um, his, especially with his scare takes, you know, he had um, some things that would continue later on, but then some, in some areas he would get more nuanced, but here he's got like the knee knocking bit and the jaw dropping what wi- with the mouth wide open, and he's going to bite his nails, and some of that stuff would be dialed down later when he refined the Stanley character. Some of it he retained, but when he gets more like Spacey and Childlike in the later years, uh, you know, it's it's a little it's a little less, but he figures out a way in what's my favorite scare take of all time, in the live ghost, to combine the two. He, he figures out how to combine the nuance and kind of the more, you know, outrageous approach that he had in habeas corpus. And that's the part in the live ghost where after Arthur Hausman has been doused with this paint, now he's crawling back, climbing back onto the deck of the boat. And Stan, you know, Stan sees him and like has a kind of a blank expression on his face. And then he closes the cabin door (laughs) and then he opens it back up again and he has this tape. And it's like, it's this brilliant uh, mashup of the two approaches of the earlier approach and the the later nuanced approach. And and I love that, you know, and I think Stan was always looking for ways to just keep developing the character, you know, and a lot of it, a lot of it has, you know, you have to give credit to Harry Langdon here, I think too, because I, I think a lot of what Lauren Hardy did in general and a lot of what Stan did in specific uh, owes a great debt to Langdon. And if you watch, if you watch, you know, Lightning get scared, there's a lot of similarities in what Laurel does. Um, So you got to, got to give credit where credit is due. But again, you know, just like in do detectives think you get a little bit of the switched hats here in Hades' car. It's very brief. They don't stick with it for some reason, but uh, it's there at least. Um, I do like that Stan gets that self-satisfaction look and a head nod in when, when, cemetery gates are are locked at one point (laughs) i don't have have to go back in right so (laughs) so of course you know that leads to the part that a lot of people remember which is ollie insists they go back in and they got to get over the wall um you know and i was thinking about this scene and how really with comedy comedy films they're going to hit everybody differently yes uh and I know a lot of people think this scene of, you know, Ollie trying to boost Dan over the the wall goes on for a little too long. I personally like it a lot. I think it's hilarious because I'm looking at their faces and their body language the whole time. And so, you know, I get it, though. I get why some people uh, lose their patience with it. It's kind of like big be big with the boot. Pulling the boot on. Yeah,
0: I'm You know, I'm but, with you, Paul. I, I love it. I think but, it's brilliant. I don't I don't think it's too long at all. I but think but here's, what ha-
2: here's what happens with any of these things. When you see it with an audience, it changes everything. Yes. You know, yeah. like for me growing up, Birthmarks and Our Wife, they weren't two of my favorites growing up. But I had opportunities to see both of those with audiences in recent years. And it's a whole different experience and they brought the house down and especially birthmarks. I realized just how much is brilliant about it. It also helped that I saw the, the recent restoration of birthmarks, which, you know, was the way it was meant to be seen originally. It makes a big difference when you don't have, um, you know, kind of misplaced musical cues.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it
2: it makes a big difference. Um, and our wife was like really a revelation too, because oh, that, that's great watching that one on my own through the years. I was like, I was like kind of, you know, in the middle on it, but with an audience, it just kills. So I, I think with any of these classic comedy, uh, you know, movies, no matter who, who's starring in them, but especially with Lon Hardy, it's an audience experience to be shared.
0: And um, funnily enough with birthmarks as well. It's, um, uh, that that twins with habeas corpus trying to boost stan up into the birth it's exactly the same scene it's just yeah. a different thing to get over you know
2: yeah there's you know, a lot well there's again. a lot of stuff that crosses over right because there's a lot of um routines in the horror comedies that laurel and hardy did that get into some of the other shorts and features that have nothing to do with horror or being scared or just these bits you know and and you know, they're, they're the things that they knew worked, and they also knew, like, they could try them again and maybe improve on them, make them even better. Um, one thing that I love in habeas Corpus, uh, it's, it's something I'm always awed and astonished by, which is displays of Ollie's strength. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah yes. because Stan is balanced on Ollie's back.
1: Yeah he's, bal- yeah, he's
2: standing up on his back at one point as he tries to get over <laughs> the cemetery wall, right? To me, yeah. I just look at that. I, I I know people look at these things and take stuff like that for granted, but I look at it, I'm like thinking to myself, oh, how strong was Ollie? You know, wrong <laughs> again. Uh, and wrong again, he's bearing the weight not only of a piano on his back, but there's a horse standing on the piano.
0: Oh, that's Ollie's good, that's, bearing that that the, has to be he's a bearing special the weight effect, of it. surely.
2: I mean, you've got to stop and think about these things. And blockheads... He's carrying Stan because he thinks that Stan lost his leg in the war, so he's carrying <laughs> him. And at the same time, he drops his his bowler, and he's leaning down to pick it up while he's carrying Stan. And he's really big at this point. By the time of blockheads, yes, and it's like, yeah. wait a second, how is he do How is he doing this? I think he's big. I can't <laughs> remember now. He was pretty big in blockheads.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's pretty um, big. Yeah,
2: you know. So I've that always astounds me, so that's a nice touch uh, you know and then and then it's just um you know the rest of the the rest of some of those gags they threw in there you know he he um stand that is places the lantern on the turtle's back and yeah. the turtle starts walking around with it that's one of those classic bits it shows up in our gang shorts it shows up in a lot of things where there's you know an animal that's somehow responsible for the scare um you know it shows up in three stooges um it could be a mask that goes on top of some little critter and then they're running around the floor so all you see is his head or it could be something to do um with a bat you know and that's another thing here's another transition so Stan's doing bits with a bat in the cemetery now he goes back to that in the Laurel and Hardy murder case and he goes even further with it and he even has the bat, you know, fly under a sheet, so it looks like there's a ghost flying around. So, you know, he it's in his head. He's thinking of these things while he's doing it. Um, you know, and and I just love that. Um, you know, so yeah, those those are really my my takeaways from the film is that it's one of those transitional films, both in terms of the Stanley character and in terms of what Laurel wanted to explore. With the macabre and the morbid and and kind of black humor and horror and um, you know and and there's reasons why you know I believe he did, did that but yeah it's 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 a terrific film.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I, I love the bit where uh, just talking about the wall the wall when Ollie deftly scales the wall himself yeah. and just goes straight straight
2: through it straight through <laughs> it you know and it almost little <laughs> touches and I mean it doesn't and it has you know it comes to that that kind of ending with Ollie falling through the puddles. So that's going to become a constant motif in Laurel and Hardy films, you know, uh, famously in Way Out West, uh, but also, you know, everywhere else too. I think at Battle of Century too, you get that. Uh, but yeah, there's just all these great moments in the film. You know, I, is it, is it one of their best shorts of all time? I won't go as far as to say that, but looking at it through the lens of, it's context, which is being a transitional film in the development of their style of comedy, as well as, you know, Stan being able to pull out the horror card when he wants to and how he's going to approach that. I think it's, it's a significant film for sure.
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely is. I mean, I think, I think for me personally, it's um, I always find it a little slow, I think um, because, you know, do detectives think that graveyard scene was quite brief um, and it worked very well because it was quite brief. I think there's only so much you can do with somebody sort of shaking and feeling quite nervous before it starts to get a little bit samey. But having said that, yeah, there are some wonderful touches in it.
2: I um, agree with you on that. I agree with you on the pacing. It, the the stuff in Do Detectives Think really does work a little better because of the timing of it. You know.
0: Yeah. But, yeah. Um, and that's another continuity error in Do Detectives Think. Um, they walk in past, and Ollie's hat flies off. And then you see the hat in the graveyard. But actually, there's two hats in the graveyard, even though only one's flown off. Right. (laughs) If you you notice that, you'll see that next time you look at it. So that was quite funny. Um, But yeah, and then uh, when Ollie scales the wall and and he's he's in the rubble, all he's done is he's hurt his foot. (laughs) (laughs) It's <laughs> landed amongst all these bricks, and then of course we have that that gag where they mistake Ollie's foot for a, for a hand, right. which we which we find again in Oliver the Eighth in a, another yeah. kind of yeah exactly. Uh, for him. So
2: these things keep popping up, um, you know, and you know I know that's actually what your next question was going to be was going to be about how how do I think Laurel Hardy fare overall in these types of comedies? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah.
2: so you know this is a good segue into that. Uh, because yeah, some of those bits they carry over, uh, and they refine them or, or or they enhance them. Uh, but a lot of, a lot of this I think is for the same reason that I got into horror comedies the same reason I'm writing the book, which is that it's kind of therapeutic to kind of, it's, it's a way of dealing with fear, uh, through humor. Right. So you know, I've read a lot of books on Laurel and Hardy. And there's one book that's not my favorite. It's called Stan and Ollie by Simon Luvish. Uh, it, it's uh a very detailed book. It's well written. It's it's not my favorite only because it seems to be more focused on their personal lives and a lot of the chaos that happened there. And I'm more into you know the behind the scenes of you know how they created. The, the stories and the gags and, and the character development. Uh, but there is one theory that Luvish puts forth in the book that I think is very viable. And it's, it's this, you know, that Stan had different things happening in his life. He had an absentee mom. Uh, his only son died when he was nine days old. Uh his brother died uh, getting, you know, laughing gas in the dentist chair, uh his younger brother. And so there's all these things that were always happening and Stan seemed to deal with it through, you know, black humor. Um, and we mentioned, you know, obviously we can look at um we could say, yeah, habeas corpus, the Laurel and Hardy murder case, the live ghost. Um to, to an extent Oliver the Eighth and Do Detectives Stink, and at least somewhat Dirty Work. We could all say those fall into the category, right, yeah. of horror comedies or they're at least near horror comedies, some of those, right? Um, but then, you know, it doesn't stop there for Laurel. You know, they put a, a scare bit into Chump at Oxford, which is, which is pretty fun and lighthearted, uh, but then there's the freak endings or the trick endings, right? Which show up in a lot of the films. Um, you know, they're they're getting twisted into pretzels. They're on the rack. You know, they, they have the blood transfusion. So now Stan is fat and Ollie's thin. Um, you know, it goes, there's so many of them. They Even some in the 40s films. Um, and, um, you know, and I think it's just... This is Stan processing, you know, pain and fear and horror and, you know, the darker aspects of life, death, you know, uh, in his own way. You know, I really think that it's it's about that, Um, you know, and so that's why I think he would come back to that well every now and then, you know, and actually do like either do a straight up story that was all on spooky side or at least insert it in there somewhere, you know.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point, that, Paul. Yeah, yeah. So which which of which of Stan and Babe's um, scare comedies would you put top of the pile, which you think is their best? Which is, which is your favourite?
2: My favourite is The Live Ghost. Yeah. Uh, I just kind of, I love the whole setup of it. Uh, you know, it's funny because um, the scare comedies, you know, they, they seem to fall in different categories. We've already talked about Old Dark House, type of categories and, you know, phony spiritualists, and their mummies is like an offshoot. Uh, But the, but the live ghost is um, it's kind of a, and it's a very small subcategory, what I call the old dark boat. You know, (laughs) uh, there was a film called uh, the octopus with Alan Jenkins and um, you Herbert that took place on a haunted boat. And, of course, the live ghost does. And I'm blanking on the title of the Bowery Boys movie that takes place on a haunted boat. But, you know, that was one of those things that would come up uh, every now and then. And so it it doesn't have as many of the trappings, you know, uh, other than, you know, you're out at sea and spooky things are happening. Uh, it doesn't have as many of the trappings that horror comedies usually have. But I love the setup of it. The opening reel is great you know, how, how Walter Long tricks them into Shanghai and crew and then they get Shanghai <laughs> yeah. themselves. It's really funny. Um, yeah. and then the whole business is set up really well about, um, Walter Long being sensitive about his ship being called the ghost ship. You know, <laughs> they really set it up and then all the stuff happens with Arthur Hausman getting whitewashed. They bring in a little extra elements about how, uh, you know, uh, Arthur Hausman's wife has been, you know, after him, you know, all this time when he's been missing on these boats. And and of course, Laurel and Hardy end up, you know, looking north when they're facing south <laughs> because they mentioned ghosts. And, um, you know, Walter Long did as he promised. He twisted their heads.
0: Another freak uh, ending.
2: A freak ending. But it's just a funny film to me. Uh, the Laurel and Hardy murder case, I would probably go to next. And, uh, for years, um, I, I liked that one, but I didn't love it. Um, and then a couple things happened, you know, um, one was one of my fellow sons, uh, Alan Schottenfeld, who was a, a dear man, a, a really nice man. He passed away, uh, a number of years ago now, but, um, you know he he was asked what his favorite Laurel and Hardy film was, and he cited that as his favorite. They thought it was a wonderful spoof. And so through that lens, looking at the dark the old dark house um, offerings that were available at the time, yeah, it really was. They really they really uh, brought it home with with spoofing those elements. And not only that, you have um, Fred Kelsey in there. As the hotel yeah. detective, and he became like the standard for that character. <laughs> I mean, right. so much so that I mean, Tex Avery even did a cartoon "Who Killed Who," and he's got like a bulldog. That's that's Fred Kelson. He's dropping the cigar. He looks just like him. He has the same mustache. He has the derby. Um, so you know, you have that aspect of it, which is great. Uh, but again, the thing that really brings it home is seeing it with an audience. So I saw it a couple times with audiences. And it goes over like gangbusters, the Lone Hardy murder case. So, you know, it always comes back to, you know, see these things, how they were meant to be seen, preferably with the original soundtrack, even if that's a synchronized music track with sound effects for a silent film and see it with yeah. an audience, you know. Yeah. And, and that's when you're going to really get the full intended impact of these films. But, yeah, I'll put live ghost first and I'll, I'll throw Lone Hardy murder case up there second.
0: That's good. No, that's good. I'd agree with that. Which brings us very neatly on, I, and I, I'm, this is going to scare you to death, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm going to give you the atoll question now, Paul. Ah. Um, so every, every, every new guest has to, uh, has to go through the atoll question. So you are about to be stranded on a deserted atoll. But we are allowing you to take with you four Laurel and Hardy items with you. Um, A silent short, a talkie short, a feature film, and a Laurel and Hardy-related book. And also, you can also take uh, The Life Ghost with you as well. That that should have been your your additional item, your favourite Laurel and Hardy scare comedy, which you've just given us. So that's your first item that you've got with you. Um, So if you'd like to uh, make a choice of uh, a silent short, and, and just give us a little explanation as to why you're choosing that one.
2: Okay. Well, I'm going to preface this by saying that I'm taking a little bit of a different approach
0: than those than
2: than those that I've heard from some of your other guests. Uh, Uh You know, there are established classics in the Laurel and Hardy canon, and my thinking on this is, I know those films really well like to the point where I can replay them in my head, in my memory.
0: Oh, so I like Stric- if, if strategy. I love strategy,
2: it. Strategy. So they're always going to be with me as long as my brain is working. So in that case, uh, you know, this is, this is how I base my, my choices. So for the silent short, now, obviously, based on what I just said, people might want to go to big business or to TARS or Battle of the Century, rightfully so uh, all classics uh, I'm going to wrong again.
0: Oh, lovely.
1: Okay.
2: I just love the idea behind it. I just love the comedy of errors set up that they yeah. think that they have what's missing when it's really a painting and they think this horse is what <laughs> they have. And to yeah. me, it's those shenanigans, you know, it's that, it's the whole Laurel being confused uh, by, by the statue is really yes. funny. It's the pre code Dan Laurel yeah. kind of pre before he gets too innocent, uh, Laurel, and it's re- it's really a funny bit. And then, of course, mm-hmm. the Ollie stuff I mentioned, which is astounding. Ollie supporting this piano with a horse standing on top of it on his back. It's just, <laughs> yeah. uh, I just like the short, I like the feel of it, the atmosphere. Um, you know, even from the beginning, it's like authentic. It's like, okay, I buy them as. Stable hands, you know. And, yes, and then them yeah. is being totally confused about who or what yeah. Blue Boy is, you know. So yes. it's
0: just yeah, great. And it's it's gags from the from the word go as well in there. When the, as you say when they're stable hands and they've got that uh that bucket with no bottom to it, and he <laughs> throws that only throws that bucket and he knocks that wheel off the cart. <laughs> it's just brilliant. Love it. I love it. Start to finish. It is a great film. Yeah. It's a really good film. Funnily enough, um I interviewed um, Ben Modell and Neil Brand, two film accompanists. They both chose Wrong Again. Oh, they did? Okay. They did, and they said, what a wonder... I think it was just, it was the experience of, 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 I guess, playing for it and seeing it um, with an audience, and it just, there was something about it. They, They both spoke so affectionately for this film um that you know as you say when 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 you understand somebody else's appreciation you watch it again with different eyes um so yeah I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the wrong again episode because i'm going to see if i can get some uh, some more comments on that from from those two guys because they were really you know over the moon with it they think it's fabulous and it is it is fabulous nice, but nice. i have to say surely I, I i have to i have to say i'm sure ollie didn't have that whole weight on his back
2: <laughs> that, it's hard it to, been... it's really hard to tell it is so hard yeah. to tell in silent movies yeah. when there's trickery at work or when it's really happening
0: yeah. and it's very well done you know i mean well
2: there's speaking of ben modell he showed he showed a short ones that he played for that has a tussle between a dog and an alligator over a baby Oh my! God. and it's real like <laughs> there's no way it can be fake there's no way it can be fake and you're like wow they really took some chances there in these silent comedy films like we know about you know the acrobatic stuff the Lloyd stuff and the keaton stuff uh but then there's things with animals and they're unpredictable but you know they would do stuff so i don't know i mean it's hard to say yeah maybe there's there maybe there was something there to just
1: keep it Well, I, I, I remember.
2: Uh,
0: yeah, a little while ago, I think it was um, in the in the Blogheads Facebook group. Um, I think it was Bob Gasell from the Marx Brothers podcast, um, and, and I'm sure he was saying that there must be some kind of counterweight behind the curtain that you can't see that's t- you know that's tilting this and and keeping the weight you know. Off, yeah, off it's
2: probably that- uh, right. It's probably a, uh, a wire or something that's lifting. Yeah, that's some holding kind of someone metal
0: bar or something yeah yeah has to yeah be. i gotta think that has to be
2: you know when those other two cases i cited it's all ollie but um
0: yeah 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 but, but then again this is a guy who who just says lower the piano down onto my back i mean who?
2: <laughs> that's right
0: <laughs> anything goes with this guy
2: <laughs> well you know where there's a will there's a way
0: absolutely right brilliant (laughs) wrong again love it that's a great short okay uh and for your talkie short.
2: okay so talkie shorts right so the go-to's for a lot of people would be music box helpmates toad in the hole, um and i'm gonna go here because i know those so well and a few other classics i'm gonna go with going bye-bye oh brilliant just for just for hilarity and and just because the characters maintain their naivete throughout, as well as their their kind of um misguided self-dignity that they have, Laurel <laughs> Hardy, throughout this short. And it's almost to the point where you're feeling sorry for Walter Long, even though he's just this horrible <laughs> criminal.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, but it's just hilarious because it's a distillation of of Lauren Hardy's characters, I believe. And I just love all the bits in it of oh, the beginning. How how can you beat uh, they pass a sentence down and saying, aren't you gonna hang him? I mean, how could you beat that? <laughs> for Hilarity and, and you know the courtroom erupts, you know? So has
1: the defendant anything to say in his own behalf? No. I hereby sentence you to prison for the rest of your natural life.
0: Aren't you going to hang him?
1: the <laughs> You dirty double crossing squealers. You rats. I'll get even with you if it's the last thing I ever do. In a jail in this country strong enough to hold me. But when I do get out, I'll break off your legs and I'll wrap them around your neck.
2: It's just it's just great. I love it. Um uh, it's it's uh it's just one of those those shorts that I just can't get enough of um uh, so yeah that's that's my talkie
0: it's a good one it's a really good one i love I love that bit where they're sitting outside the courtyard deciding what to do next right it says we, we need we need to get out of town it says oh how are we gonna get out of town well we we've got a car What are we' got what we're we gonna run it on on the road <laughs> on the road <laughs> <laughs> I just love that it's just so good so so good. Oh, anyway, okay, brilliant. Um, and the next one is your feature film.
2: Well, here's where things get scary. Speaking no. of scary, scary things, and I'm listen. I'm going to back this up because I doubt anybody else is ever going to say this. Uh, so, this may scare your listeners, and this may get me banned from the future editions of the podcast. <laughs> but, but I have a reason behind this, right? So, you go. so obviously. You know way out west is perfect right I mean it's perfect yes yeah I think Sons of Desert is near perfect uh yeah. maybe one too many oh it's from Ollie when he's pretending to be sick but it's near <laughs> perfect for me you know you yeah. go to our relations and blockheads those are fantastic if if yeah. you know not per- they're not imperfect but they're they're fantastic you know and of course I grew up with babes in toyland uh which you would think would make that. You know, my choice. But you know, I have those all committed to memory. Yes. But there's another film that's completely out of left field. I'm about to blow everyone's mind when I say this. But I would actually take the big noise.
0: Whoa. I would take the big noise.
2: And there's a (laughs) reason there's a reason for it. When I was a kid. Okay. When I was a kid, it was one of the films I saw on TV. And now I had already seen a bunch of Roach films, a ton of them. I'd seen a bunch of classic shorts and features, and I loved them. Uh, but when I saw The Big Noise, I loved it too, like just for what it was. Like I knew it wasn't like a Roach feature, but I also kn- knew that like, I like them in this. They're, they feel like Stan Laurel to me. And yeah, they're they're kind of, you know, rehashing some old gags. Not always in the best way, but still they're there, and so it almost plays like a a greatest hits career retrospective for me. Um, and and you do you get that, and you get a habeas corpus in there twice. You get.
0: I was just going to say you that you get the, just you get say the that. wet paint
2: gag, which is yep. great. That's a wonderful part of habeas corpus. And you know what? I like <laughs> it in the big noise too. I like the wet paint gag, and I actually use it to. Um, they parlayed into another gag, which is a new gag, which is, you know, the 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 inventor, the crazy inventor with with the vacuum, and they have to, you know, get rid of the paint, and then there's a whole yeah. bit where, you know, now the paint goes on the on the painting. Yeah, it's a whole thing, right? Uh, but at least they kind of took it and extended it into something else, right? Yeah. Uh, and then he mentioned it, and there's a bit. It's just a verbal bit where Stan and Ollie are just discussing, you know, what they learned at um, detective school. And, yes. um, and Ollie says, well, habeas corpus is a town in Texas. And then, he winks, <laughs> and then he winks to us. It's like one of those rare moments in the 40s film where Ollie looks at the audience, you know, and it's a wonderful moment.
1: Well, sir, you're in luck. I'm happy to inform you that two of our best detectives have just entered the office.
0: I'll send them over immediately. Goodbye. What two detectives entered the office? You and me. Stanley, this is our opportunity. We took this job as janitors to become detectives, didn't we? We've been going to night school, studying for eight months to be detectives, haven't we? You want to be a detective, don't you? Sure, but I don't think I'll make it. Why not? Well, you see, I I don't know what that word habeas corpus means. Habeas corpus. Why, habeas Corpus is the name of a town in Texas. In Texas. Mm-hmm. What's the boss doing up in Sacramento? And Habeas Corpus is in Texas. Oh, now don't bother about that. You run over to the room and pack some of our things. We're going to be on this job a long time.
2: Uh, but it's just—it's just a loopy film, you know. There's things. It's not perfect, but there's things about it that I like. There's a, almost a surreality to it. Uh, there's a return to some eccentric um you know supporting players which which weren't always the case in the 40s yeah. film sometimes they were too straight the uh, the villains yeah. um yeah. so there's a return to that in the film and and then it just you know it has a trick ending that's a beautiful wonderful delightful trick ending where they're on the buoy and stan plays Mersey dotes in the concertina and then the fish start you know coming above the water and <laughs> dancing i mean it's it, it yeah. sends you out on this on this lighthearted note. So yes, it's not the conventional choice by any means. Uh, but it but I have that reason, and you know I'm always going to replay uh, Way Out West and Sons of the Desert and those other films I have yeah. mentioned in my mind. You know, and yeah. and I know every line. You know, yes, especially of Sons of the Desert. I I had the record of that. They they used to put, <laughs> they used to put record albums out of just the soundtrack. And I I memorized that whole thing, you know, the exhausted ruler said, you know, the whole (laughs) all of it. So so yeah, that's my choice for that. I know it's it's odd, but but please, people, allow me to be back on the show again. Some other.
0: You know what? I love it. I think (laughs) that's I think that's a great choice. I love it. I mean, the I've said this I've said this before. I know there are films that people really don't like, but what I like about it is that there are those same films some people do like and some people love. And I think that's great because I would hate to think that there are films that Stan and Babe made and put you know put a lot of effort into that everybody hates. So that's great. No, that's perfect. You are the second person that I know now that likes the big noise. Oh,
2: okay. <laughs> Let me know when it gets to three.
0: <laughs> exactly, you can have a party. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Um, well, we'll just uh, yeah, we'll just pull ourselves together after that uh, that bombshell, <laughs> and uh, we'll go for your your final choice, which of course is a Laurel and Hardy related book.
2: Okay, here's where I'm going to rein things in a bit. So everybody, this is the relief part. So you know there was the the scared part, and now here's the the relief part. Um so, yeah. So, I mean, there's so many great books about Laurel and Hardy, right? You know, um, the first one that McCabe did, Mr. Laurel and Mr. Hardy, is is really, you know, that's that's the one that starts it all off for a lot of people. Uh, Randy Scrapfett's book is essential uh, and indispensable. It's unbelievable. It's such a great book. Um, it was great when he first did it. It's even greater when he redid it. Uh, yeah. And the same, I'll say the same for Scott McGillivray. He did uh, his yeah. book on the 40s films, and he also redid his, his book just like Randy did. And it's great. It's great to, to see the rest of the story, you know, uh, yes. yeah. mainly because it's not just about those 40 films. It's all about, you know, how these things came into syndication on TV uh, and and the later, you know, licensing things with Larry Harmon and the Youngson compilations. So all these things I grew up with are discussed at great length in Randy's book. So those are great books, but I'm going to choose a book now that's just so near and dear to my heart. Um, and it is the Coffee Table book, Laurel and Hardy by John oh, McCabe, okay. Richard W. Ben, and Al Kilgore. My library, my town library had that book. And... I borrowed that book constantly. In fact, uh, in those days, you know, I'm a kid in the 1970s. In those days, it's a literal punch card, right? Go to the library, you take the book out, punch the card, and it reads your library card, I guess, like a credit card. So your number is printed on there. You have a number,
1: (laughs) a 12-digit
2: number. And you could go to the shelf. You know, after you'd returned the book, you could find the book on the shelf again and see the card back. And see how many times you took the book out. <laughs> and it was almost exclusively me. Over and over and over <laughs> over again. You know, and I just love that book so much, you know. And it's funny, I mentioned Big Noise before. Because I, I see, I, it didn't, when I was a kid, I didn't really get the significance of the hats. The hat ratings that they gave to the films. So I didn't have that sort of sense that this was a going to be a lesser film. You know, I just took it on his own merits. But anyway, that book, just to see all the photos, all the stills, production stills, uh, publicity stills, uh, shots that didn't even make it into movies, and to see the cast lists and the synopses, it just, you know, it captured my imagination. Uh, And it became my my go-to source book for many years. And in later years, I had a chance to meet John McCabe and, uh, and he autographed a copy of it for me.
1: Oh, Wonderful. fabulous! Uh, but yeah,
2: yeah, that's the book. You know, that's where I'm. That's where I'm making. Uh, you know, my films were unconventional choices, but that book, I have to, I have to go with that because that's ingrained in me. That's a big part of my Laurel and Hardy journey.
0: The fabulous book. I mean, as you say, that that is. It's kind of the way that you are able to have the films at home, you know, uh, in your hands, because you know, in those days, it was so difficult to get the films to to watch over and over again. So, it is a beautiful book. Uh, I mean, I I have a copy, but it's not one of the originals. It was like a reprint from. It must have been the nineties. I think they did they they reprinted it. Um, But yeah, fabulous book, fabulous choice. Uh, Fantastic. Well, that kind of brings us to the end of the. of the Laurel and Hardy questions, the only other questions I was going to ask you, Paul, uh, is uh, whilst you've got our ears, are there any projects that you're currently working on that you'd like to promote?
2: Yeah, I have a few things uh, here and there. Um, n- nothing too actively, right, at the moment, but I will mention a few things. Um, I am a, a, a pretty regular speaker at the West Orange Classic Film Festival in West Orange, New Jersey, uh, with the exception of a couple of years where I was living in California. And the pandemic year, uh, but but for those screenings, uh, they've been pretty much alternating between Laurel and Hardy and Abbott Costello films. So I'll I'll get up there and I'll do a little introduction, uh, and then do Q and A afterwards. Uh, and it's been great. It happens uh, early each year, usually between January and February. Uh, I in the past I did show, I did sort of a matinee recreation. Uh, one year where I showed flying deuces with a Popeye cartoon and a flash Gordon cereal.
1: <laughs> uh, I
2: chose flying deuces because uh, we wanted to keep licensing fees down and knowing I was going to show three, three things. We just want a public domain for that year. But then I did also uh, the music box with way out West, the restored versions uh, back in 2018. And that went over really well. And I'm hoping real soon, maybe even in uh, 2023, to do more of the restorations. Uh, shorts. I kind of have this thought in my head to do um, Laurel and Hardy at work. You know, oh, it, yeah, would be, yeah. you know yeah. it would be like, um, you know, Busy Bodies, Hogwild, Toad in a Hole, and Helpmates. Yeah. You know, working working at the job and at home. You know, and uh, those are all restored. So those are. that's my hope is that that will be next. Um, you know, I was working for a bit on a documentary about the Bowery Boys and Dead End Kids. Uh, I'm not sure the current status of that. I, they were trying to get uh, post-production funds. Uh, so I'm not sure where that's at at the moment. You know, and other than that, you know, I I wrote comics for many years. I haven't done any comic book projects recently, but you never know if that may pop up again. I've also written some animation. Um, I have a couple of scripts for uh, a streaming video show called Coco Talk. Uh, right. that They're gonna be produced soon. Um, you know, and that's kind of almost like a comedy. It's like a spoof of talk shows uh, with a, a, a mug of cocoa and a little marshmallow is <laughs> the co-host who floats the top of it. And uh, <laughs> I didn't create it, but uh, it's something uh, that's being done through a company called Minnow. And that should be out, I think, in the fall, a couple of the episodes that I wrote. Uh, so it's kind of like a comedy duo in a way. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and that's, you know, yeah. that's really where I'm at right now. Um, you know, there's always something brewing. Uh, I want to uh, dig deep into this scared, silly project again. Start doing yeah. reviews. Of course, uh, there will be a, a quite forthcoming habeas corpus review. <laughs>
0: Uh, yes, get it done quick. Coming oh, fresh. Because
2: of because of, uh, because of the time we had here today and, and revisiting yeah. the film, it's time for me to actually write that review. So yeah, this has been a uh, good impetus to get that That's good. I appreciate it. But yeah,
0: that, well, I'm that's glad to be of help. At. Fantastic. And is there anywhere that people can find you online, Paul, if anybody wants to sort of get in touch and find out more about what you're doing?
2: Sure. The best place would be to go to my Scared Silly blog, uh, which is... Scared Silly by Paul com. I know it's a mouthful. Um you know my you spell my last name C-A-S-T-I-G-L-I-A. That would be the tricky part for people. Scared silly by paulcastiglia.blogspot.com.
0: Fantastic. Well, we'll put a uh, we'll put a link to your blog in the show notes to the the broadcast today as well. Paul, so anybody could just go on there and click straight through to uh, to your blog, so that'd be fine. Um, brilliant. It's been great uh, just chatting through uh, all the scare comedies and the history. It's been it's been uh, really interesting though as well the way we looked at. Um at Stan's creative process and the way that he was developing as well. Um, Yeah, fascinating. Paul, thank you so much. And hopefully you'll come on again another time, perhaps when we get to The Murder Case or Live Ghost or something. I would love to. Fabulous, fabulous. Thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful.
2: Thank you, Patrick. Be well.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that little chat with Paul. I know I certainly did. Um, And if you're sitting comfortably, we'll get on with part two of today's episode and we'll meet our second guest. So over we go to California. Now, as an added treat on episode 24, and to complete our look at Laurel and Hardy's habeas corpus, I'm delighted to welcome back the brilliant Randy Screpfett. Welcome back, Randy.
3: Well, I don't know how brilliant I am, but uh, thank you for having (laughs) me here.
0: Very, very brilliant. Very brilliant. Um, Randy, thank you so much for agreeing to jump on this episode. Um, I really wanted the benefit of your expert knowledge uh, to complete our deep dive into Habeas Corpus, um, because it is, it's is—it's a very important, it's a historically important uh, Laurel and Hardy film. Um, obviously, H- Habeas Corpus um, marks the beginning of Laurel and Hardy's transition from silence to sound films. Um, and that transition for all studios and actors, I find endlessly fascinating. So I just wondered if we could begin um, by, this is a big question, but if we could just try and sum up the general kind of background behind this this industry-wide movement into sound. Okay. How's, how's, how's how about that for a start I, of a ten I,
3: I will do that, but first I should mention that the commonly available DVD of Habeas Corpus in the UK does not have the soundtrack to which we will be referring. It has an organ a newly recorded or more recently recorded pipe organ score. Uh, the real soundtrack is on the American Image DVD, which is long out of print. And I, I don't know where you can access <laughs> the film with the actual score now, but I'm sure there's, if, if, if I'm sure if you look hard enough, you can find it somewhere.
0: You'll certainly know that. I think it, I think it's on YouTube. I think there is one on YouTube. Okay. Because that, that uh,
3: actually was not even around when they did the laser do- I don't know where uh, Mr. Ag located the discs, but he did eventually. Now, where they have since gone, God only knows, but at least we have them on that one DVD. All right. Well, anyway, uh, of course, you know, uh, the idea of sound and movies um, even predates movies, because Edison was trying to come up with a visual component that would be as successful as his phonograph. I mean, that was a very commercially successful invention. He was already making... Uh, 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 cylinder recordings for uh, for sale, mass mar- or mass producing them, and wanted to do something that would be the visual equivalent, and so that's why he uh, began working with film and the kinetophone and all those good things in the 1890s. But the whole idea was born from the phonograph. So the idea of of sound and film working together was there right from the get go, and uh, uh, there are many many different procedures that uh, uh, sort of worked but really fell by the wayside, uh, the most notable of which was probably Lee DeForest, who is more uh, remembered for creating the audion tube that made radio possible. Uh, he had something called phonofilms, and that was a sound-on-film uh, procedure Um I think they were at 22 frames a second, and the soundtrack took up a a large amount of the film itself, but they have somehow found a way to play those back and and preserve them. Um, Edison himself also made in 1913 a whole series of Kinetophone films, and there's a DVD of those as well, one of which stars Arthur Hausman, whom we know, yes, it's called Jack's Joke. So you can hear Arthur Hausman speaking in 1913, a full 19 years before Scram. Uh, So that's kind of interesting that uh, Arthur Hausman's in a talkie going back that far. So that's if you're really, really interested in the archaeology of sound on film, uh, look for the Kinetophone films. It's a DVD. Um, So it was there was always this attempt to marry uh, phonograph records and motion pictures. The problem was synchronization and amplification. Uh, you know, things yeah. were always going out of sync and or things were not loud enough. Um, but it seems like the people at uh, I think it was Western Electric uh, created the the system whereby a a disc player was on a governor with the uh, uh, projector. And thereby they could, if you put them in, started them at the right place, as long as there weren't any breaks in the film or skips in the record. Why the- <laughs> theoretically you could keep these things in synchronization. And uh, uh, if you look in the uh, magic behind the movies, I have a couple of photographs of uh, Richard Courier and another man named Harrison from the sound crew installing these sound on disc uh, uh, with the projector uh, the playback machines. And Roach is looking very interested because he's paying a lot of money for these things. Uh, <laughs> and of course, the people who, who install the sound equipment. Uh, under the direction of of Elmer Regas, were from the Victor Talking Machine Company. So the idea really was that sound was going to be on records. And uh, uh, it was the Fox people, uh, William Fox, that uh, adopted a system. There was a guy named Theodore Case. And Theodore Case is the man who developed optical uh, uh, sound so that the soundtrack is actually on the film itself, not on a separate disc. And so Fox championed that system, which they called Movie Tone, and Warner Brothers championed the sound-on-disc system, which was Vitaphone. And uh, MGM at first was sound-on-disc, however, their discs were not made, they were not technically Vitaphone discs. Their discs were made by the Victor Talking Machine Company, whereas true Vitaphone discs were made by Brunswick another record company, and Warner Brothers actually bought Brunswick because they figured they they needed a, a record company to press all those records they were going to need for soundtracks. Well, as it turned out, pretty much by 1930, everybody had gone to the Fox movie tone system. Um, anyway, uh, the, 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 the movie that is sort of the big announcement of sound on film is Don Juan, uh, which is a Warner Brothers film starring John Barrymore and Mary Astor, and it came out in August of 1926, and it is a silent film with titles. But it had a score by William Axt, who later worked for MGM and is one of those people who who created a whole library of silent movie music for uh, people in local theaters. You know, every no two screenings of a silent movie were ever exactly the same, really. You know, because uh, judging on what theater you went to, they might have an organ, they might have just a piano, they might have a small orchestra, and even even a, a given performance would, for a given film would change from one to the next. Uh, back in the 70s, uh, we used to have a revival theater called The Tiffany in Hollywood. And at one point they had a, two screenings of Buster Keaton's Steamboat Bill Jr. at an afternoon and an evening screening and Chauncey Haynes, who had played for Motion Pictures in the 20s, was going to be at the, the, at the theater organ. So I, th- I said, I want to go to both screenings and see how much if any he plays from one show to the next and sure enough it was entirely different he was he was composing as he was watching the film which is really what those people did and the only thing that he played that was the same in both shows was there was one gag that depended upon an old song called the prisoner's song uh, Buster's trying to get his dad out of jail and the song goes oh if i had the wings of an angel over these prison walls i would fly it was a very well known song in the 20s and so for that he played that little snippet of melody. Everything else was entirely just on the fly, just you know, uh, looking at the film and and composing as you go. And that's really what those people did. So, so what Warner Brothers wanted to do was they wanted to bring a symphonic orchestra. You you had those in the in the major cities. They would they would get music cues and they would get a symphonic. Uh, uh, there was a full score written for Wings, for example. Uh, which has since been re-recorded on the Blu-ray. You can hear the 1927 score for it. Um, And the Warner Brothers wanted that to be in every theater around the country, thereby throwing a lot of musicians out of work, too, by the
1: way.
0: Yeah, Um, yeah, exactly. uh, And there
3: were a lot of suicides uh, because of this. Um, If if you see the uh, Kevin Brownlow uh, series Hollywood, which is about the silent Mm. era, the 13th and final chapter is all about these many different attempts to create sound on film, and then the repercussions in the industry when they finally did uh, go to sound films. It's very fascinating. So Don Juan was the first one and does and, uh, it August of 1926. And it had a full score, but it was, and there were occasional sound effects. There was a, you know, a, a swashbuckling sword battle between uh, John Barrymore and the villain. And you hear the clash of, of the swords going back and forth, but that's about it. There's no dialogue. And uh, this was accompanied by a bunch of Vitaphone shorts, um, which had some vaudeville people and uh, it had Martinelli singing uh, uh, opera. And uh, uh, these actually had speech in them. And those actually seemed to be more popular than Don Juan. And so the Warner brothers took note. And when they did the the jazz singer the next year, which was uh, uh, August of 1927 uh, or October of 1927, rather, um, that's mainly jolson singing but there are a couple of moments where he talks to the audience and he's uh, to the audience in the film and he says wait a minute wait a minute you ain't heard nothing yet you ain't heard nothing yet you want to hear all right three choruses and then and that made people sit up and take notice and mostly a scene where he talks to the actress playing his mother eugenie besserer and he's ad-libbing he's playing the piano and he says Mama, if I do well in this show, I'm going to take you out of here and I'm going to b- build you a nice house in the Bronx. And da, 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 da. And it's, it's, it's so intimate and seems so real because he's just ad-libbing it. And that's what really made people say, oh, wait a minute. You can do more with this and just add music to a silent movie. And so that's what really tipped the balance toward dialogue in film, that one scene with Jolson. So uh, MGM was the distributor for Hal Roach's films, and they had been since September of 1927, and they were always the most timid studio about new technology. Warner Brothers and Fox were always the guys who leapt into new technology, and they're always the ones who won the Academy Awards for sound or optical effects or uh, whatever. MGM was always wait and see, and when the other guys get all the bugs out of everything, then we'll (laughs) go for it. And so... Uh, they didn't get around to doing uh, music and sound effects until September of 28 with uh, our dancing daughters, with jo- Joan Crawford. And then a little bit later, they did a- some talking sequences in their films. They did one called alias Jimmy Valentine with William Haynes. And so uh, Hal Roach was a little more forward thinking than his uh, uh, distributors at MGM. And so he, uh, in October, Uh, he went to Camden, New Jersey to talk to the Victor people about installing sound equipment because he could see that this was the coming thing. He didn't think it was a fad. And uh, uh, the quote is, uh, let's see, they damn near threw me out three or four times. (laughs) But in a week, I ended up with a contract with the Victor company. They didn't want to get into the picture business. They were making records. But I had some pretty good arguments for them why it wouldn't hurt them to get in. And until RCA bought Victor, they made all the sound in my studio. So uh, the the people who made records came in and they installed sound recording equipment. And it was all designed by Elmer Regas, um, who, by the way, is the guy responsible for electrical recording. He was part of the team at Bell Labs uh, who created microphones, essentially. Uh, you know, up until that point, you had the horn, the, the acoustical horn that you would record into. Uh, but uh, the transition for records happened in the spring of 1925. And that's because this new technology became available to recording studios. So Elmer Regus is the guy responsible for all of that. So anyway, uh, all through that period of uh, 1927, 28, and early 29, You have these hybrid films, where some of them, like *Habeas Corpus*, are what they called synchronized. They weren't sound yet; they were they were just music and effects. And in fact, there are trade uh, ads that Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer placed uh, in the, uh, the 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 magazines for exhibitors, and they say Laurel and Hardy we have them in silent, synchronized, and sound. And so they had. At that point, they you could get uh, uh, Double Whoopie and Big Business, which had no score whatsoever. They were just silent, and you had to put in your own music, or they had Habeas Corpus, We Faw Down Liberty, which have these synchronized scores, and they were rush releasing, uh, unaccustomed as we are, and Birthmarks and Men o War, these early talkies. Uh, in fact, you know the it, it's interesting. The last silent is Angora Love, which was made in March of 29 and was not released until mid-December and I I believe that is in fact the last silent film released by any major studio uh, because it's much it's two months after MGM's last silent feature so right there there were some silent very low budget westerns uh, made in 1930 and there were still of course theaters in smaller communities, which were not yet wired for sound because that was very expensive, so there were a lot that were still showing silent pictures into the early thirties, until they finally got themselves all wired. But uh, and and there are silent prints of um, I know there's one of Bratz. I don't know how far they go with with the official silent editions, but they did make silent editions of some of the early talkies.
0: So do we know why they um why they kept. Um, big business and double whoopies as as just pure silence. I
3: I don't know, but it's it's interesting that the the films. I think there's five before them that have the full orchestral scores, and then the two after them have only one pipe organ, which is of course much less expensive. So it must have had <laughs> it had to do with money.
0: <laughs> uh, right. And possibly speed, I guess, as well. Just trying to churn things out and move on and yeah. pass the silence, maybe. Yeah,
3: I don't, I don't really know why those two did not have uh, scores. Uh, the 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 organ, by the way, that uh, that you hear in uh, 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 Bacon Grabbers and Angora Love, is for you jazz aficiona- aficionados out there. Um, Fats Waller, the great jazz stride piano player and singer and composer, um, made several uh, pipe organ solo records. Uh, jazz solos in 1928 and 29 and that's the very same pipe organ that you hear on those two laurel and hardy scores uh because those were those were recorded as was the score for habeas corpus in the trinity baptist church uh their their congregation had flown somewhere else i don't know but anyway victor (laughs) had bought the trinity baptist church in camden new jersey and they loved the acoustics and they installed recording equipment and made a lot of their records there and and there was already an organ there, being that it was a church. So they made they had another guy under contract named Jesse Crawford, who was very popular, and he was a a theater organist, and he used that organ as well. Brilliant! I
0: thought you were going to say Fats had actually played the music on that. On, no, uh, School, well, somebody was, somebody bacon was wondering
3: about that, and uh, let's see, I found the guy's name. Hang on. <laughs> yeah, Norbert Ludwig is the guy who plays for Bacon Grabbers and Angora Love. Playing the SD pipe organ in the Trinity Baptist Church at one one four North Fifth Street in Camden,
0: New Jersey. So now you know. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so uh, yeah, so listening, well, listening back to what I think is the um, the original soundtrack oh. to uh, *Habeas Corpus* that's, that I found on on YouTube, um, the sound effects track is quite. Uh, Rudimentary, I think, is probably uh, is fair to say. Uh, I guess, I guess, um, Richard Currier was was just basically finding his way, just finding his feet, and making it up as he goes along.
3: Yeah, well, as as was everybody. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, yes. One, that's one true. thing I like is the approximation of Leo the Lion's roar,
0: <laughs> which Ah, know that isn't on the YouTube. Oh, versions. it's not. Oh, is it, is it a, tuba? Is it a it's tuba? a tuba? Is, is yes, it's a tuba. Yes, it's 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 yeah. it's
3: a guy. It's the tuba player, and. Uh, Whose name is F Pfaff, P F A F F, which is a good name for a tuba <laughs> player actually, and he's he's loosely. But you know, when you play a, a trumpet or a cornet or a tuba, you don't blow it. You you buzz. You do that on the mouthpiece, and it's a wonder to me that most more trumpet players don't have strokes because an an amazing amount of pressure builds up in your head when you do that. Uh, anyway, he's loosely buzzing on the mouthpiece of the tuba, making this. <laughs> Sort of a rather a rather flatulent sound, unfortunately, for poor poor Leo. That that famous piece of film, Jackie the Lion, was the name of the of the lion, and it was shot silent. And when you see the silent era films, he, he turns his head majestically, and then it's like somebody said, Jackie, and he comes back and goes, huh? Well, they they cut that because it doesn't look good. So by the talkie, by the time of the talkies, they just faded out by the time he turns his head majestically. But they used that piece of film through gosh, the mid-40s, even though it was shot in sometime like 1926. And there are three different lion roars that they used over the years. They, I think they finally settled on one in 1932 and then used that one from then on. But if, if you look at uh, uh, the definitive restorations, um, you'll hear three different lion roars on the on the early talkies. Right. Because it, it's it's really. all post-sync because it was shot silent. Uh, anyway, the uh, the score for Habeas Corpus is different, really, from the others, because the others rely much more on popular tunes of the day, uh, usually as some sort of ironic commentary on the action. And so, uh, uh, you know, That's My Weakness Now is a, a frequent theme. Um, uh, That's My Wife Has, Is She My Girlfriend? howdy Hey, hey, I'm here to say she's my girlfriend now. <laughs> and and then use Ain't She Sweet, you know, and uh, things like that. Um, uh, we Faw Down uses cheating On Me uh, as part of the music. So <laughs> if, if you know those tunes, it's wonderful because yeah. you get the joke. You know, there's all these implied jokes in the music. Uh, most people today, I don't think, know those tunes. Um, but the cues are all listed in my book, so you can read through them and... <laughs> you know, as the film is going, okay. Well, go, oh, that's that's that one. That's that one, and maybe you'll find one that you remember. You know, but uh, the, uh, the the official cue list uh, now. A lot of these are written uh, by a guy named John Stepan Zimchnik. I think is how it's pronounced. Z a m e c n i k sounds like a Polish name to me. And uh, but he was an American composer uh, uh, and uh, born in 1872. And he's primarily famous for having written a lot of music for uh, people accompanying silent films in movie theaters. Um, there were several people who did that. Uh, William Axt is one who uh, did some Laurel and Hardy music and also worked a lot at MGM. Erno Rape is another one. And, and every once in a while, you'll find this big hardcover book of music cues for different kinds of scenes and movies by Erno Rappé. So you could just have this one book propped up on your piano or organ as you're watching the movie and you say chase scene. And you go, Oh yeah. And then, you know, if, if you needed to read music, well, there's, you, know, you just read the chase scene music as you're watching as, and it's all written for you by Erno Rappé. But uh, let's see if I can find something about a good old uh, uh, Zingchick here. Uh, I know I have something about him. Uh... Yeah, here we go. Yeah, he was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, highly regarded in the 1920s for the many uh, generic themes that he wrote for movie theater accompanists. Uh, This incidental music was published in several volumes as the Sam Fox Moving Picture Music, uh, no relation to William Fox, who was the head of the Fox Movie Studio. And uh, there are some that are used in habeas corpus. There's one called Bon Vivant. Storm Music, One piece that people will probably remember is one called the Funeral March of a Marionette, because that was used as the theme song for the Alfred Hitchcock Presents TV show for many years. that's that's yes. in habeas corpus <laughs> and it's not in the official list of cues yeah. but they do have um at the very end they have uh, there, there's a little bit of kitten on the keys there's a scene where a cat goes by and they use the intro of kitten on the keys which is it's a uh, piano novelty by zez confrey uh and then they use at the end pop goes the weasel And, and a little bit of I'm Always Chasing Rainbows when Ollie is coming up out of the mud puddle. So, um, a little ironic humor there, you're in a mud puddle. So... Uh, so that is actually in the score, even though it's not in the official list of of cues for
0: Habeas Corpus. Your, your, your viewings of these films must be so different to mine, because as you say, if you know these, these yeah. pieces of music.
3: Yeah, well, as you know, uh, I have for 40 years done a radio show called Forward Into the Past, and uh, I wish I could take this laptop out so you could see my barn full of records, uh, what one wall of which is 78s of 1920s dance bands, and uh, so yeah, I'm I'm quite conversant with the music of that period. Uh, that that period from 1926 through 32 is really my favorite era of popular music. And uh, but I got interested in all of that thanks to the cues in the Laurel and Hardy talkies when I was when I was a kid. I just fell in love with uh, all those Leroy Shield. Uh, tunes and said that, that that stuff has to be on record somewhere or something similar to it and so that's what began my mania for uh, that type of music yeah
0: i've just i've just started my own collection i've got to say um i've been scouring the, our local charity shops and i've found uh who is the latest miff mole oh yeah I've come, yes I've come back with miff
3: mole we, li- <laughs> we like uh, a very influential trombonist but then when Jack T. Garden came into town, he saw the writing on the wall and he uh, got out of jazz and became a studio player for NBC Radio and uh, remained there for about 12 years and finally did go back into jazz. He was with, with Benny Goodman in the early 40s, came to a sad end, unfortunately, but he uh, made a lot of great records with Red Nichols, the cornet player. So you'll you'll, you'll find Red and Miff's stompers, uh, Miff Stompers, Miff Moles Molars, Red Nichols and his Five Pennies. Uh, the Charleston <laughs> Chasers—they were under a bunch of different names, but it's the same basic group. Uh, but yeah, Nif M- Mole is terrific. He has a very jaunty style.
0: Yes, yes. Was very, I, I, it was—it was a bit of a test. I don't know whether I like it. I'll just stick it on it straight away. I Think, yeah, this is perfect. This is exactly what I'm after. This is yeah, great. Yeah.
3: Well, if, if 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 you're if you're interested in more, I can get you more. I know a guy.
0: <laughs> oh, <well. laughs> oh, I,
3: I know someone who has a lot of that type of music.
0: Does he have LPs like in his in his coat? He just opens his coat up.
3: <laughs> well, I I have it. I have that stuff on original 78s, LPs, CDs, uh, lots of MP3, whatever format I can get as long as it's a good transfer. Uh, I don't re- I I'm not I do have friends who are fanatic about having the actual original disc and they will pay $250 for a 1928 copy of whatever it is. No, I would much rather have 250 LPs than one record for $250. Yeah,
1: right. And, you
3: know, if you know where to get them, you can get an old out of print LPs for a, a buck a piece, you know. And uh, uh, the, so I—that's how, that's how come I have a lot of records, because I'm not uh, uh, picky about having the original. I do have a lot of nice originals, but really more by accident than anything else. Yeah, anyway,
0: brilliant. yeah, I was going to say the um, the the size of the orchestra that plays for habeas corpus. Yes, I was amazed when I saw the amount of of personnel they would brought in to record. Uh, this. Yes,
3: there's 28 men, and I was able to identify some of them. I was able to find who played what. It's not on that ledger, and I'm also trying to figure out where I got that ledger that I sent you. Uh, that may have been sent to me by Pete Schroeder. Uh, that's, that's my guess. Cause I don't think it's on, there is a wonderful resource. If you're interested in, uh, the recording dates and locations and composers and things like that, it's the university of California at Santa Barbara, UCSB. And it's the, uh, what is the, the directory of historical, uh, it's, it's anyway, it's, <laughs> it's, it's all the recording information from Victor and I think Columbia, I think they're even going into DECA now, but they're going into all the old recordings. Uh, they've got the 20s very well covered and uh, the 30s and just anyway, look up UCSB DHEA uh, recordings and you'll, you'll start going down the rabbit hole of, uh, of, uh, of finding, you know, you'll start searching. They, they have, by the way, that's where I found a lot of the information about Hal Roach uh, talkies. Uh, because if you type in Hal Roach in the search engine, uh, they have the matrix numbers for these discs that were made for early Hal Roach sound films. And it's very interesting for, uh, unaccustomed as we are, they were making a new disc basically for every take. There's <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> like 60 discs and they very quickly realized they didn't have to do that. That was very cumbersome doing that. <clears throat> and so Ultimately, what they wind up doing is recording everything on optical film, and and then when they get the track all put together, then they just make a disc of that. So the the idea of recording live in the studio on disc as well as on film went by the wayside very quickly. It was very it was very cumbersome, but they they did try that on custom as we are anyway. Um, so uh, yes, we have on the uh, habeas corpus we have twenty eight men. Uh, crowding themselves into the Trinity Baptist Church. And uh, what do we have? Uh, We have some regular Victor musicians. So these were guys who were um, either under contract with Victor, or they were just people who were regularly uh, uh, engaged by Victor. Uh, Sam Pasternak on viola, Alexander Schmidt on violin, Clement Barone on flute, etc etc then we have some who are philadelphia men and i presume it's from the, the philadelphia orchestra that uh, eugene ormandy would later uh, be the conductor of and we have another pasternak david pasternak on violin joseph chudnovsky on violin there's lots of them there they're all listed in magic behind the movies and there's a few for which i couldn't uh i couldn't figure out what instrument they played but we do have as the lineup four first violins two second violins two violas two cellos a string bass a harp two trumpets one trombone two clarinets two french horns two flutes a tuba piano oboe bassoon two traps meaning drum kits and a xylophone huh, that's uh, that's a very that's a a, a very involved arrangement yeah for
0: uh, a real comedy certainly yes
3: yes <laughs> yes um And uh, also, uh, I mentioned in Magic Behind the Movies, Richard Courier told me that he went to Camden to oversee the recording of these first uh, synchronized uh, uh, pictures. And uh, he couldn't remember the name of the musician that he worked with. It might have been Nathaniel Shilkret, who later worked at Roach's on Bohemian Girl. He was sort of overseeing all of the popular music that Victor was uh, releasing at that time, and uh, the the guy who is uh, the director of the habeas corpus uh, uh, sessions is Rosario Burdon, and uh, I think he made some some uh, records as a band leader also for for uh, Victor, um, and then Joseph Pasternak also oversaw some of them. So they had different people working on these, but they were all recorded in Camden, New Jersey, and most of them at the Trinity Baptist Church, and. Uh, I'm trying to find now the the quote from Richard Courier where he was talking about how he wanted to do uh, a sound effect with some rocks. And um, there was a certain thing on the recording device called a light valve. And it was very fragile. And if you had too loud a noise, the light valve would break. And and he said, well, how much does this cost? A hundred dollars said, oh, no, 20 or 30 cents. (laughs) <laughs> it was like a little fuse, basically. <laughs> he said, "Well, the hell with it. We're going to do the loud sound then." And he wanted—he uh, he wanted to shoot off a gun. Was it? He wanted to shoot off a gun for a gun sound effect. Yeah. And I think it was—I think it was uh, uh, Regus who didn't want him to do that because it would break the light valve. But yeah. when he found out how inexpensive the light valve was, well, that was sort <laughs> of a moot point. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, uh, here uh, uh, here's the quote from Courier. Uh, he went to Camden and he said. Uh, he said, we had about eight or ten pictures we were going to release with sound effects, because as you know, there were other Roach films which were released with these synchronized scores. There some our gangs as well. I don't know if Charlie Chase ever got any like that. Um, there's a, uh, a DVD about to come out in a couple of months of the earliest Chase uh, talkies, and uh, whether this would include any synchronized Chase films, I don't know. Uh, I know there are I know there are a couple for which they have not found the soundtrack discs, and so those are going to be released with subtitles. They found a lip reader to figure out what they're saying. Oh, wow. They'll, they'll, they'll have subtitles and an organ score in lieu of the actual sound Brilliant. track, which evidently has not yet been found, if it still yeah. exists. So Courier says, uh, we had about eight or ten pictures we were going to release with sound effects, and I put the sound effects and music in them back there, Camden. There was a well known musician there. I can't remember his name, but he said, Hell, I don't know anything about the picture business. You pick <laughs> your own music. I'll make it for you and you can handle it from there. So it might have been, Courier may have had a hand in, in picking the popular tunes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I know that he played, did he play saxophone? He played something or other, a banjo, I think. And, and he said, Hal Roach played saxophone. And uh, Leo McCary played piano. And so they would get together on lunch hours and uh, uh, be a sort of little combo uh, together. So, so uh, the courier was certainly aware of popular music at the time. He might have been the guy to, to pick some of those tunes. Um, so he said, uh, so I cut the music tracks together. And then when we did the redubbing, I added a bunch of sound effects. I'll never forget. I wanted the noise of a big bump for one of the pictures. They had a big box filled with rocks, and you'd turn it over and you'd hear the bumping against the side. Well, they didn't give me a rehearsal. I thought, what the hell? Don't need any damn rehearsal. All you had to do was dump <laughs> it over and record the bumps. Well, instead of taking it easy, I gave the box a hell of a shove and bumpity bump, bump, bump. You really hurt those damn rocks. So they had to do a retake.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
3: M- Mr. Courier was uh, congenitally unable to utter more than three sentences without damn or hell being in there. So one of the charming things about him.
0: Yes. I do like I do like the sound of Richard Curry, I've got to say, every every time I read anything about him, I just I just feel drawn to the guy.
3: <laughs> well, do you do you do you have the the CD? Do you, do you know what his actual voice sounds yes, like? Yes, it, it's, it's very lovely, isn't he? Yeah, it, it's also on uh, the definitive uh, Blu-ray or, or DVD, the definitive right. restorations. Uh, well, uh, he was still a chain smoker when I I, I met him on his 88th birthday, <laughs> which August 28th of 1980. And uh, he was still smoking up a storm all the rest of the time <laughs> I knew him, which was another four years or so. Have a cigar?
1: Don't mind if I do.
3: So, uh, yeah, uh, anyway, habeas corpus, as I say, it's, it, it's quite surprising when you hear it because unlike the others, I think it's a, a larger orchestra and a more classically oriented uh, 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 score uh, because the, the tunes uh, a lot of them are by uh, Mr. Zem- Zemchnik, and uh, several <laughs> of them are by someone named Will Donaldson, not to be confused with Walter Donaldson, who was a popular songwriter. But these are um, a cannibal carnival. <laughs> Toreador at Andalus. Uh, Pollywog's Frolic. That's one by William Axt. Hey,
0: Ollie, what? What's a Pollywog? I'll tell you later.
3: Uh, and then we have a bunch of them from something called Congo Sketches. I don't know what Congo Sketches is, but evidently it had a lot of very uh, fearsome, frightful music in it because they use <laughs> Dance Barbar many times uh, from that. <laughs> Mysterioso, and then, of course, Funeral March of a Marionette. And something called It's Raining by one Hugo Fre- A Cannibal Carnival, there's another one, by S.P. Levy. So uh, they, they, it seems like they just pulled out a lot of very spooky-sounding cues and knitted them all together for the score for uh, 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 Habeas Corpus. They, and they may have already had, and probably did, already had orchestral uh, uh, pieces ready to go, and that's probably what determined the makeup and the number of the uh, uh, orchestra. Determine what, what instruments they needed and how many guys would probably determine by the uh, uh, prefab score. So uh, there you go. There's uh, uh, the, the music for Habeas Corpus. And uh, there were several little bits and pieces in the script that they didn't use in the film. Uh, at one point when uh, Laurel and Hardy were first supposed to be introduced to the uh, professor, he was eating spaghetti. And there was a whole <laughs> gag there where they were eating spaghetti together. Well, that didn't wind up in this film, but it did wind up in Unaccustomed As We Are. So uh, the, the, the same gag where Stan's not looking and he's dumping it in Ollie's lap. So uh, yes. that's one. And as I say, probably the the biggest difference is that uh, they do come back to the professor. I don't think they had a body with them, but they do come back to the professor. And, and that's when he gets hauled away. And there's a still from from that Uh, they must have filmed that version of the ending and then scrapped it because there is a still where you see Laurel and Hardy watching Richard Carl being taken away by police. And uh, so that's, that's the ending as scripted, but not in the film. So anyway, uh, Richard Carl was supposed to say, as he's being taken away, he was supposed to say, wait a minute, boys, I I want to, I want to pay these two fellows for what they did for me. And then he, as, as with jitters, the butler uh, in Oliver the (laughs) Eighth, he, he, he peels off, you know, imaginary money and hands, <laughs> and hands it to them. So that's what they get for their their evening really and, uh, hard work. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting how many uh, other films where there are references to uh, in films to come or films that have already happened. Uh, at the beginning of *Habeas Corpus*, uh, they're asking for some buttered toast. Well, they yes. do that in one good turn. Yes. And of course, the whole the whole idea of a crazy scientist uh, is in dirty work. And in in fact, uh, Professor Noodle was first, the first choice was Richard Carl uh, uh, to play that role, not Lucian Littlefield. Richard Carl, by the way, has a fascinating background because he was really a musical comedy star uh, at the turn of the century. Uh, You wouldn't think that this uh, portly, balding old man would have been a guy (laughs) singing and dancing. But he he wrote he was like George M. Cohen. He wrote the book and the music, uh, the songs, and he produced three or four wow. musicals in which he starred. Uh, if you go on eBay every once in a while, you can find a program for them. He was quite the quite the musical star in his day, but then as as he aged, he decided to go into pictures and he became a very busy character actor and uh, was working right up until he passed away. Uh, there's the gag of the. Uh, uh, of Ollie's foot being mistaken for a man's hand. Well, that shows <laughs> yeah. up in Oliver the Eighth. Uh, yeah. There's the there's the bit with the bat flying around. Well, that shows up in uh, Murder Case and Atoll K. Also, they you know even even in Atoll K. Um, there's the, the, the most involved sound effect is the hand clap where Charlie Rogers is doing doing you know Stan will do this and then there's an echo from Charlie yes. Rogers and yeah. then at one point Stan does this and Charlie Rogers goes. You know, and so where that third one come from? And that's that's in kind of synchronization. You know, you can tell the poor guy was watching yeah. it. You know, as the yeah. film is going, he's trying to do it in sync. Uh, so that's similar to Chump at Oxford, really. You know, with the whole third hand business. Of course, yes. And of course. Uh, then we have the body gag. Well, that actually comes from there was a, a Clyde Cook film called Moonlight and Noses that Stan co-wrote and directed. With clyde cook and i got to interview clyde cook he uh, my friend jordan young and i went up to his house in carpinteria california uh quite a bit north of here we went twice to visit him and uh we had lunch with him and he was a great interview he was uh 86 and had a very retentive memory Brilliant. and he said he said we're, we're i'm working with stan he's directing this picture and i had a body i was carrying this body around and he says and we got stuck for a gag and we were trying to think, you know, we're in the middle of filming and we said to each other, what do we do with the body? And he said, well, that later became a sort of a, a gag phrase with us. You know, whenever we were stuck for a gag on a subsequent picture, <laughs> we'd look at each other and say, what do we do with the body? That became their, their <laughs> code, their code for we need to think of a gag, you know. <laughs> That's great. So yeah. that, that was a wonderful story. Uh, and, of course, uh, they had done a spooky, Laurel and Hardy had done a spooky graveyard scene in Do Detective Think. Um, You know, um, I, not that long ago, was watching that several times as I was uh, typing up the script for the new, uh, we must get a a plug in here, the new Laurel and Hardy Movie Scripts Volume 2, which has just been published. Uh, There is a script for Do Detectives Think in there, and uh, and of course, before I wrote my uh, introductory notes, uh, to uh, delineate the differences between the script and the movie i had to watch that four or five times and really get that ingrained in my uh, memory so that i could look at the script again and say they're missing this they're missing this that's not there da, 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 da. Yeah. but but it it is interesting that they uh, they are similar the gangs are different but uh, it's kind of the same basic premise yeah, you know
0: definitely did you spot uh, the continuity error randy
3: uh, with, uh,
0: with the continuity error? Yes, yeah. In the, uh, in do detectives think, they're walking down the street and the, the, the wind blows the hat off, yeah. Ollie's hat off. Stan carries on walking and they they, they shoot uh, into the graveyard and you see two hats on the floor, not just Ollie's hat. Oh. Stan hasn't yet blown off. <laughs> oh. Oh,
3: I'll, oh, I'll have to look at that again.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. And also, and there's another continuity error, which actually you've just answered the question as to what, why that is. At the start of Habeas Corpus, when the boys, uh, you know, you see Stan's hand about to knock, and Ollie's uh, hand yeah. comes and flicks him away. Yeah. If you notice, Ollie's arm is covered in paint. Ah, and been out. They haven't oh, been out well, yet. Oh well. Okay. That.
3: There you go. So that was supposed to be at the end when they come back.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now that what? Now once.
3: Okay. Now now what I was looking at all through the film. I watched it twice this morning. Stan's uh, a suit has a rip in the lapel a little rip in the in the lapel and it's yeah. the same it's the same suit that he wore in do detectives think it's the one with the pinstripes yeah but but by this time it has that rip in, and maybe they did this deliberately because they're supposed to be vagrants looking for a handout at the beginning of the, of the film
1: yeah
3: stands uh, uh, jacket has a little rip in the lapel and the the right uh, elbow has a hole in it it's the if you look very carefully there you see Stan's actual elbow jutting through the hole in the fabric
1: right. yeah.
3: the most famous portrait of them he's wearing that coat because that little rip in the lapel is there yeah. and there's also a couple of little paint stains on his tie and okay. i i have narrowed that down to being during the filming of of Angora Love because both of those elements are there when he's in Angora Love he liked right. that coat and that suit which also became very frayed at the bottom of the cuffs, whenever Laurel and Hardy have to be down and out uh, in bad streets financially, that's the, the, the suit that he wears, that one from Do yes. Detectives Think. And I think yeah. in the book I originally said he wore it through 1931. Actually, the I was able to find it all the way through Hollywood Party in 1934, <laughs> by which time they had repaired – the rip and the lapel, but it's still that same suit. Yes. So, uh, uh, the, you know, he just progressively wore it until I guess it just finally really wore out. But, but whenever they were supposed to be, uh, you know, not doing too well financially, that's, that's the go-to suit for Stan Laurel. Uh, awesome. So, uh, and of course at the, at the very end of uh habeas corpus, we have one of those uh, six foot mud puddles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, which which we've seen in uh, putting pants on Philip and, yeah. and and I'm sure we'll see again in subsequent films but uh, the, uh, you know *The, the habeas corpus doesn't really doesn't really come to a, a a full ending. it just sort of stops um uh, it, it would have had a full ending but they decided to have the professor be taken away at the very beginning of the film rather than at the end. so uh, they probably were just running long at that point. Um, they weren't doing three reelers yet. Uh, they were, they were pretty strict about things being, um, uh, 20 minutes, you know, because, because the, the, the exhibitors were planning their program that way, that the cartoon was this long, the newsreel was this long, the short was this long, and here's our feature. And if if you made, if you made the short a reel longer, it sort of threw things out of whack. So, so that's probably why they, they wrap it up rather hastily.
0: Yes. Yeah. Oh. But apparently, um, it was one of the. Um, I'm trying to find uh, where's my article. It was one of, it, it was one of the funniest films. Let me get this right. It had the most laughs in it. Um, let me get let me get the article.
3: Oh, I'm sure sh- I'm sure you have found many articles that I have never seen.
0: <laughs> Here, we go. Here we go. So I'm- this is from the Los Angeles Times. This is this is just a put. Po- this is just a portion of the uh, of the article from December 29th, nineteen twenty nine. And it said the highest total of laughs in any one Laurel Hardy comedy was reached during a clocking of habeas corpus, Mm. the action of which took place largely in a graveyard. 128 unmistakable cashinations were registered by this one hundred uh-huh. one One hundred, one hundred and 100, three is the total made by Night Owls currently on view at the Chinese Theatre. Oh. So, so by that they're saying that out of the first what forty-three ish films that they made together, *Habeas Corpus* had the most amount of laughs, which huh. I'm quite astounded by that. <laughs> mm. As much well, nice a film as it is, I don't that, think it's one of the funniest. That
3: that, that that does sound like a bit of press agentry, but uh, but anyway, it's interesting that that wound up in the LA Times. And there, there yeah, there, there's a. Uh, there is an interview with Stan uh, around when they were making night owls or just after they'd finished night owls. So for some reason there was a lot of interest in Laurel and Hardy by the Los Angeles times at that particular moment. Cause there's a Philip K. Shewer was the longtime film critic at the LA times. And he interviewed Stan. And that's, that's where there's a quote from Stan saying that he was unhappy that they had to keep night owls down to two reels. Uh, I think it's uh, the Same
0: article. Yeah. And, and
3: one. okay. And, uh, and, and, of course, they didn't in the foreign language versions, which are much longer. Uh, and and the next film, as it turns out, is their first three-reeler, is Blotto. So, so maybe Stan went to Roach and said, you know, do we really have to keep these things to two reels? Because... Uh, sometimes they yeah. need to be longer and, uh,
0: that is, and that is one of the quotes in that same article he, yeah, they're talking okay. about okay. Um, they talking they talking about the pie fight and about being um, ah, okay. they, they sort of st- they're typecast as that's all they do he says in fact we've only done that in about three of the films yeah uh, and then yeah, and then they went on saying about um, we, we're now going to make films to be as long as they need to be okay so, you know to make the most of them so that's okay. exactly it yeah. good I'm,
3: I'm glad I've seen that one
0: then I know I they're still out
3: there, there are still several wonderful articles that have escaped my radar. But you know, despite all of my <laughs> diligence in doing research, but there's there's more. So, uh,
0: uh, well, like um, I can't tell you the delight when I when I can actually tell you something, Randy. I love that. Yeah, that doesn't happen very often, and I'm sure. Well, well I'm
3: I'm looking for forward to yeah. your book on the silence. And uh, uh, there there are things happening with the silent films. They will start uh, being uh, seen in the next couple of years as they go into public domain. Uh, but yeah. uh, uh, the, as as Jeff Joseph, who uh, funded the uh, most of the restorations for uh, the Definitive Restoration set, he says, every one of these films presents its own horror story. And, you know, this is the thing, is that these were not lovingly cared for. Um, Hal Roach's attitude was, I did those already. I want to do what I'm doing today and tomorrow. And unfortunately, that sort of reflected itself in the way that the film library was handled. And, uh, you know, you would think after the mid 19 or the late 1940s with television, you would think that somebody in the Roach studio would have said, you know, people want these for television. We really ought to invest some money in, in in preserving the library. But it seemed like every time there was a new licensee, they'd go, Oh, surely this is the last one who will want these (laughs) old things. Who wants these? They're from 1929 for crying out loud, you know, and, and then Youngson comes along and then, uh, Walter Reed pr- uh, comes along, and Mirish and all these other people who were licensees over the years. Janus Films. Um, so <laughs> it's you know they're, they're 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 being pieced together from multiple sources now. You know, and uh, I mean there are times when you know I was buying these films in the late '60s and early '70s on Super 8 when I was a kid, and I have all the Laurel and Hardys at Blackhawk made available on Super 8, either silent or sound. And uh, when I look at the either one of the two different DVDs on Sugar Daddies, for example, I'm just appalled because my Super 8 that I bought in 1974 is beautiful. It's very nice and sharp and com- complete. And then I look at the DVD and it's this battered thing with scratches and decomp. And it's like, well... Are our best sources now Blackhawk prints? They probably are in some cases. Probably, yeah. I mean, probably not so. not Super 8, but but 16 millimeters made at that same time uh, because Blackhawk sold them all in 16 as well. And, uh, you know, as you know, the second reel of Battle of the Century is only in that one 16 print that Youngson made, which has now gone vinegar, unfortunately. So they caught that just in the nick of time. What a tragedy that what a tragedy that would be if he'd opened the, the can now and found the complete reel but it was vinegary huh Oy, oy, yoy so thank God thank God we found that one or he uh, John Marsalis found that one uh but anyway yeah you know it, it could uh, um, uh, the people who are doing these restorations are investigating all sources and uh, uh in fact there's some footage at the very beginning of that's my wife you know, when you hear the soundtrack of that, you hear this piano plunk at the beginning. You know, so you go, what's that? Because it's not <laughs> represented in the visual on the DVDs. Well, yeah. there is footage of Ollie pacing back and forth and he's by the piano and he goes, wham, like that. And he and he hits his, oh, wow. he's hit his arm and he hurts himself. And then there's a dialogue exchange with the wife, which has about another three or four title cards. Oh, wow. Well, this footage exists, but it exists in a standard eight home movie print that was made sometime oh. in the early 50s. And that okay. <laughs> that so far is the source that we know of for that footage. So it, it, it may be in a couple of years, if we have a restoration on video, that's my wife, the yeah. first uh, uh, 45 seconds or so may be in somewhat less than pristine sharpness yeah. and condition because they are taken yeah. from a standard 8 print but If that's all there is, that's all there is, you see? Yeah, that's true, uh, that's true.
0: But I guess that might might jog somebody else's memory that, oh, I've got that in a better condition, you know. um,
3: Well, uh, 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 in the early, when I was in my early teens, I was buying bootleg prints of Buster Keaton movies from a guy in Buenos Aires. (laughs) (laughs) He, He didn't sell in Super 8. He only sold in Standard 8 and 16, so I had to go out and get a Standard 8 projector. But he had... You know, the goat, the boat, uh, neighbors, Convict 13, he had all the shorts and most of the features, and I wanted them. So I saved up my allowance, and if I wasn't buying a Laurel and Hardy that month, I was buying a Buster Keaton. And so I got Convict 13, and it's complete, and it has the uh, golfing sequence that is at the beginning and the end. It's The, the whole jail thing is really a dream, just like Oliver Eighth, because Buster had been hit on the head with a golf ball. So I've got this print, and it's okay. It's not a great Keaton short, but I've got it. Okay, there it is. It's in my closet. Then I get the David Robinson book on Buster Keaton, and it says, Surviving Prince of Convict 13 no longer have the golfing uh, sequence, which evidently was the uh, beginning and ending of the film. I'm going, what? I have that uh, six feet away in my closet. What do you mean it doesn't exist anymore? And then when they came out with a laser disc, it didn't have it. And I went, you know, uh, is this the only source that? Well, subsequently, Serge Bromberg at Lobster, of course, has combed the earth for every square foot of Keaton footage that there is, and he's yes. he's found it, and it's intact now. Um, somebody else found uh, for Keaton the scene, the shot of the boat. Uh, you know, the famous shot of where where the boat descends all in one smooth move until oh, it's Buster's yeah. at. Well, yeah, the print that we have is Buster's print, which had decomposition on that shot well someone else has found another copy of it that has that iconic shot clean and so uh i know a couple of people who have access to it and i'm they're they're hoping to bring out a a video release of that so we can finally see that uh without without the distraction of all the decomposition (laughs) spots on it
0: yeah so you know uh yeah, yeah, so so it may it may help. Let's let's hope if they well, put it out that way. Because I guess is it, that is that the reason the um you know the Laurel or Hardy uh, Blu-ray that came out um, that Rob Stone yeah. was involved with there are some i mean there are some beautiful uh quality images and then for a few frames it'll go to a very blurred looking one and I thought that must be where they've cut in you know yeah. sixteen millimeter or super eight or whatever yeah yeah so that would be the reason for that yeah yeah yeah
1: they're
3: just you know when when they have the available frames they'll put it in from whatever source they've got but sometimes yeah. it is a little bit distracting because they are going to a, an inferior source yeah but yeah. i guess you know complete the is content complete. is there that yeah yeah. That's yeah. Right. yeah yeah
0: definitely yeah definitely yeah it's such a shame the uh, the silence have been very sort of neglected over the years but um, hopefully things things are changing let's that's their yeah, fingers crossed that would be yeah. great and yeah. i do think that is a lot of you know when you look on social media and you see so many f- Laurel and Hardy fans' attitudes toward the silent films are so negative and I just they just won't touch them, they won't look at them. And I think that may be a big reason for it, isn't you, it? You, you, the quality you, that they've seen yeah. is just so off-putting. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. No uh I'm I'm sure that uh, in a few years' time we will be very happy with uh, with what we have. It's gonna it's gonna take several years, but if we all if, yeah. if the planet can stick around for another ten years, we don't all burn up with uh, (laughs) climate change, uh, then maybe we'll be uh, watching uh, pristine Laurel and Hardy Blu-rays. Oh, I, I, I hope it won't be only streaming by that point.
0: <laughs> no, no, no I, no, I, no. I
3: like I like physical media. Thank you.
0: Yes, yeah. So do I. So do I. And that is that's you know one of the re- main reasons I want to produce this book on the silence is because they've been so neglected. But also, I want to try and present them in a very beautiful format because mm-hmm. the, the the copies of the films that we have haven't been. So I'm trying to get as many you know gorgeous stills together to really ring the bell and shine a torch on these. Yeah. these fantastic pieces of, of work that the boys yeah. put out so yeah the
3: the, 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 the pathes are kind of difficult to find the stills on uh, the mgms yeah. you can find uh you know russ babbage yes
0: i know russ very well he's working on the book with me yeah, yeah.
3: okay well very good i was going to say he's he's your source for uh pristine uh silent era material yeah uh, for the mgms yeah, yeah. anyway uh yeah. and i i sent you the duck soup ones yes that were from johnny cropper's collection
0: well, I, I, was, I, say, was, I was. Thank you so much for those. I was. I
3: got those last October, and I jumped out of my socks when I saw those. I'll tell you. because I bet. Uh, I bet. O- only one of those has been circulating, and the other nine are just magnificent, gorgeous originals. Oh, you know. So they
0: are. They are amazing. But but and they, but,
3: but, they, uh, but I wanted you to have them, and uh, uh, I've given them to Serge Bromberg also uh, for whatever future project he's working on, because. Um, they don't do any good sitting in my file cabinet, so I, I want well, this is true. i want them to be out and about, just as with these scripts that just came out, you know. Uh,
1: Fantastic.
0: I, I got Bless those you. last
3: December. I would never have anticipated that here at the end of June I would have a whole new book, but here we are. <laughs> Thank, you. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Exactly. Thank you, guys, everybody up there who's <laughs> putting these things in my lap. This, this happens oh. again and again. I don't know, but for whatever reason, Fantastic. when it does, I'm always eager to uh, make sure they get out there to the an uh, army of Laurel and Hardy fans who still exist. God love them. So
0: absolutely wonderful, brilliant, Randy. Thank you so much for that. That's been a, a brilliant look at the uh, the sound recording process and and certainly a, a habeas corpus. Um, but thank you so much for joining us today on the broadcast. And hopefully we'll see you again soon. Yes, good Lord willing, I'll be here. And there we have it, or rather, there you have it. I'm having mine later. Um, that's all there is today Um, I hope you've enjoyed our deep dive into Habeas Corpus, Um, it really is an important film, no matter how you actually feel about the film itself, Uh, the fact that it is the first step towards the talkies is is a very significant point your homework for next time, should you choose to accept it, is to re-watch the film We Fall Down, that's the next film in the Laurel and Hardy canon that we'll be taking a look at Um, all that's left to say is a huge thank you as usual to the Bohunks Orchestra for the wonderful music Uh, Thanks to our guests, Paul Castiglia and Randy Skretvet, And last but certainly, no means least, thank you to you for listening and sharing this time with me once again. And until next time, stay safe, keep laughing, and it's goodbye from him. Goodbye. Goodbye from him. Goodbye. And it's a very goodbye from me. Goodbye.